come in riding his pigs. Just ask in a woodlord. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's been about as hasty as a glacier. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I could do a lot better and all. Yeah, you could. Yeah, well. But you took the first woman who liked you. Yeah. So that's really on you. Yeah, well, I've never particularly regretted it. I know. I'm just <laughs> saying, I would have been fine. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you would have just been back where I found you. Unemployed <laughs> in Greenland. I had a job. <laughs> Look, Tom, that's not dramatic. Uh, welcome back, cousins. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. And gals. Right. Cousins of all genders. Yeah. Gender fluid, gender yeah. fuck, all of them. Just all y'all. Yeah. Uh, this is the last thing. It is. It's the last episode. Granted, this is two episodes of Up Yours Downstairs. Yeah. Except also one. Right. Because we're only doing one version of the Abbey Awards. Yeah. Because we're tired. Well, we're tired and also there's, you know, we're doing, the awards are for per episode of Downton. I feel like. I feel like the the savvy, the canny listener <laughs> is already typing a telegram to disabuse us of that theory. Uh, also, it's our podcast, I guess. But well, actually, though, because like if you Grand Canadian Trunkadelic right. was one of our first uh, two, two parts, parters, and that one, and that was Grand Canadian Trunkadelic Part One and Two, right? Because we like just ran out of time on that one. Uh-huh. We weren't even planning that to be two parts, yeah. so. This one, we are planning it to be two yeah. parts. So we we've, have thought ahead. We've become more... It's uh, an up yours downstairs first. That's we've right. thought ahead. <laughs> a little bit. You know, we had no guests this season. No, I know. It's kind of people, a bummer, people but... People don't watch Downton Abbey anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue. <laughs> There's a whole article on the New York Times about like, oh, like fill in these dick bags <laughs> who bowed out yeah. when the show became unwatchable. <laughs> Stopped watching it just because it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I mean, it's so... uh, We would have. Yeah, absolutely. Because that is our style, television watching-wise, and we are early adopters on things being shitty. Yeah. We were the first people to stop watching Lost. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) In all of recorded history, once Lost started... Yeah, check Guinness. No, yeah, we are the first ones. Because you don't kill Adebisi. Right. Like, rule number one of TV. (laughs) Oh my god, remember when Adewale, Akine, Adjula... I don't Uh, even remember how to spell it, so I certainly can't remember how to pronounce it. It. Yeah, but Adebisi followed Fo- us. Followed us, yeah, on Twitter, like very briefly. He might still be in there. He might. I guess that's I don't true. even know. Uh yeah, it was long ago. It was a magical time. Yeah, everybody was into Downton, and now fewer people are. Very much fewer. But uh, and most of them don't know what a podcast is. <laughs> that's true. So we're not famous. Well, that's that true. was part of my plan <laughs> for this podcast was to get famous. <laughs> uh, well, it was always, you know, uh, a long shot, I yeah. have to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the people that did stick with it, uh, meaning the show and us, yeah. are the ones that are listening right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it's I mean, what has been really amazing and overwhelming. We're not trying to. uh shit on anybody who's still here like right, you're right, the right. good ones yeah yeah you're the people we like you're Absolutely. not on our kill list <laughs> steve buscemi in billy madison style <laughs> right 
No, I mean, it, it has been really amazing mm-hmm. over the past couple of months. Like, really, mainly since the uh, the U.S. air... You know, the majority right. of our listeners are in America. Right, obviously. Probably because the Brits don't like us mispronouncing their neighborhoods and counties, <laughs> as we are wont to do with no... Remorse. No, we don't even <laughs> look it up anymore. Right, that's um, true. But just, we've had so many amazing telegrams, mm-hmm. and it's been really hard to like pick ones yeah at this point yeah like and i can't even really we've decided not to get emotional <laughs> about this right now right because there's still a whole second part yeah and possibly a wrap-up yeah or something the, we yeah. don't even know we don't know Again, exactly we're when not the end thinking is. ahead we did we thought ahead a little bit we thought a little bit ahead <laughs> but not by much yeah um but, you know, whether you are, you know, Cousin of the Week or not, we are receiving and reading your emails. Yeah. And, you know, and our our response rate is not great anymore because <laughs> when we started this, I didn't have a real job. Yeah. Now I have a real job. Yeah. And I owe that all to you, <laughs> cousins who listen to this podcast. <laughs> My employer was like, this one. Whew. Yeah. She's got a podcast. Let's uh, let's Look her, let's lock her down before yeah. podcasting takes off. <laughs> um. Any yeah, so now. I mean, it's just, it's been really amazing to hear from people and, you know, mm-hmm. the telegrams and the tweets, carrier pigeons, yeah. and everything we get on Facebook, like it all ranges, you know, there's people who are just sending in these goofy things, there's people who we've like helped with like mental illness issues or are just glad that we like talk about that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and we've learned a lot from you guys, Yeah, absolutely. and it's been really incredible, mm-hmm. um, so thank you for that. I'm going to stop talking about this now, because <laughs> I can feel the emotions starting to pool in my stomach, and they will only uh, be excised by weeping, and I don't want to do that right now, because there's a lot of funsies that happen in this episode. That's right. The so time for said, weeping is not now. Yeah, the time for weeping is later. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so let's go ahead and kick it off with our cousin of the week. Okay. Cousin Tamika writes, Hello, Kelly and Tom. I have yet to see the final Christmas special, but I can already tell I am going to be disappointed. I have a feeling Bates and Anna's story is going to end with the birth of the baby and them both living lovingly in each other's eyes. Unless Bates is so honorable that he becomes a deadbeat dad because he doesn't want his child to know he was once a drunk and a thief, and that is not how their story should end. I know everyone wants a break from them after murder prison, but there was a clear way to make all that dumb filler worth it, and that was for Bates to be the Downton Estate's own Jack the Ripper. I think there should be no question to him killing his wife, and during a rewatch, he seemed to have quite a violent streak in the early seasons. Mm -hmm. Remember when he pinned Thomas to a wall and threatened to break his skull? I also got a bad vibe when he was sounding like a stalker, asking Anna a thousand questions about her going to London with Mary for the mystery appointment, and then sounded like a super controlling boyfriend when he demanded Mary not take care of the bill for Anna treatment listening to your early podcast before you settled on the anal sex and or mary's vagina killed the turkish gentleman (laughs) theory you discussed if there had been perhaps a slow acting poison that had been given to him early in the day it sounds like no one was turning up dead in downton before mr bates arrived on the scene just saying then there was a scene where i believe lord grantham was getting dressed by william or carson it might have been after bates left the first time and lord grantham asks if they believed bates could really be a thief and the servant answered he would rather believe bates was a silent assassin epic foreshadowing (laughs) the flaw in this theory is if Bates was really a sociopath killer wouldn't he have murdered Thomas a long time ago maybe he would have before Anna told him to find the snuff box in his room and hide it elsewhere after that to win the affection of Anna he made his turmoil with Thomas and O'Brien a game to entertain him 
Anna was his obsession and he got her love by constantly being a martyr to garner sympathy. Another thing sociopaths are known to do. Hmm. I've had this theory for a while now, but it seems the Christmas special is going to be nothing but sugar to tie up all loose ends and give everyone a happy ending instead of the dark twisted reveal we deserve. Love the podcast. Can't wait for Mr. Selfridge to return. It was all I thought about during the Entourage movie. Your cousin with bad timing to send in feedback, Tamika. <laughs> uh, so this is great. Yeah. And I have to say that would have been really something to have it end like with a kaiser soze thing where you see him limping along and then he starts walking normally and well that would only work if his limp had been consistent <laughs> through the series that's true uh you know oh man what if benicio del toro was in it <laughs> boy you'd be happy i would be happy you're the number one benicio del Toro. that's right no i think very intriguing theory i'd add does Bates have an alibi for when the Titanic sank? I think not. Also, wasn't Bates's psychological mistreatment of Thomas a way of pushing him toward a slow suicide? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it still holds a bit of water. I think it and, does. You know, here's what's weird. Like, well, it, I don't. I don't actually believe that he killed Vera Bates mm-hmm. just because that character is so cartoonishly evil. Right. That committing pie suicide <laughs> suicide <laughs> how did it take us this long to come up with this yeah, anyway that her committing suicide by pie like i don't know man like it, yeah. it's just i don't i don't give baron fellows that much credit mm-hmm. for making anyone that interesting right well i don't think he knows what a terrible uh relationship the bateses have no because uh, well and again if you're like if your whole thing is like oh you know these toffs weren't all bad well then quit letting these fucking poor people refuse the free money they're being given yeah agreed i I find it very frustrating well and just always saying that he misses her whenever she's out of his sight yeah man i don't miss you when you're out of my sight no like i do when like we're separated by like you know states yeah or countries or like you know for a day or two that's or whatever mainly that's... for snuggling purposes oh, right, and because i'm codependent in a very healthy way <laughs> that's right it's within boundaries well we have very independent lives from each other we do not yeah i think we think we have that more than we actually do well you're probably right but, but people still. are always amazed that we like go and like do stuff with other people yeah that's that, true. and like don't bring each other along mm-hmm. and our friend sam who has been on this podcast yes. as a guest has frequently commented that we're not the creepy kind of married people uh, who, like, have silent conferences in front of the rest of the group. Because, mm. like, why would you do that? Yeah. Anything I would say to you, I'd say in front of our dickbag friends. <laughs> um, I have been... Because we listened to the first episode right. briefly. Yeah. Felix, if you're listening, I'm not sorry. Yeah. And we said at the beginning of that, we were like, we're married, but we're not going to be dicks about it. Right. And we never have been. I think that's generally true. I think true. that's really impressive. I'm, yeah. And a lot of the feedback has been like, they love it when you call me baby, when I'm sad. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, aw, no fans of David Mamet's Oleana here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and it's like, we, you know, I think we've been putting out a consistently, uh, accurate product yeah yeah i don't know you know we're in it i don't know if it's good yeah i think it's pretty good i think it's a uh, yeah you still do a good job editing it yeah no i'm i'm you know i'm not ashamed of it like i agree with you that just being inside of it is hard for us to judge but it's it's, like i don't you know i don't listen to recap podcasts well right me i read recaps but i generally i am so like it's not that i'm a luddite Mm -hmm. but i like chafe anytime somebody's like oh watch this video listen to this podcast (laughs) yeah i'm like that seems like something i don't want to do right 
Um, so that's the other weird thing about us having this podcast for so long <laughs> is that we kind of don't understand why anybody would want to listen to it. Right. Although I've come around on podcasts more than when we first started. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are yeah. definitely like moments where I'm like, I don't want to listen to music. Mm-hmm. And like, I love, um, the podcast that I like now just kind of like for listening to is another round, which is from Buzzfeed. Oh, okay. With, uh, heaven and Tracy. Okay. It's great. It's, it's just these two women kind of talking about whatever. And they have like really famous guests on uh-huh, and it's uh-huh. really cool. Um, and I, I really like that one for that purpose. Okay. And I like, uh, you must remember this is a good one, right? which me, I feel like we have to have called it out on here probably at some point. Yeah. But anyway, just in case anybody cares what podcasts I enjoy. Yeah. You like that warriors podcast. I do though. It's actually a basketball in general podcast, but, uh, it's called dunked on with mm-hmm. Nate Duncan. Uh, but they focus on the warriors a lot That's because a they're very good. Yeah. I agree. No. And I used to like that Jesse versus cancer. Mm-hmm. I really did. Cause like he kept talking about how people were going to like stop listening to it for context at this comedian who got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer mm-hmm. and he's just been like podcasting his journey and i really liked it even though i could tell he was kind of like a libertarian asshat <laughs> yeah but like it got to this point where he was like talking about sex workers and how sex workers should like appreciate it when guys just want to like talk about bands mm. when they're getting a lap dance and i get real mad yeah about emotional labor yeah and i just like and i thought i've been like should I go back? No, and I can't go back. Yeah, so it goes. I mean, that's the thing about podcasting. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of people in their unvarnished state. But yeah. I think that our Midwesterness. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it's been a big It help. does us a lot of favors. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> I'll remember that, like, British Navy battalion. Oh, yeah, I do. I don't know if you're all still listening, but I think that might be my favorite fan interaction of all time. Yeah. Just that all of y'all were, like, saying, boom! <laughs> <laughs> um okay so we talked about podcasting in general yeah um you know you're welcome that we never got ads (laughs) (laughs) we really thought we were gonna have we really thought we no but you know what this is what happened we i think we could have Mm -hmm. in series three potentially yeah but we didn't have the listenership that we have even now right and then Series three wound up being such a shit show, mm-hmm. and that was when many people left. Yeah. So then we were like, okay, yeah, but we're completionists, right? I mean, I don't know, like, and as frustrating as it's been at times, because we're busy, we're a lot busier than we used to be. Right, I right. travel a lot more now, yeah, but it's but- like I don't regret it no i don't either i like i I, think it's i don't know why i feel okay here's what i I was i had not thought of this before but i just thought of this now in 10 years they are totally gonna do you know downton abbey you know two electric boogaloo (laughs) and it's gonna be george and sibby and marigold on the eve of world war ii Mm. because they'll all be the same age Mm -hmm. approximately as mary sybil and edith yeah and well, some newspaper reporter, whatever we have then. Um, <laughs> so no, but you yeah. know, who, who knows more about Downton Abbey than us? That's true. Julian Fellows. Right. Neem. Neem. And the Oracle. And the Oracle. That's yeah, it. Like that is. it's them and they're not going to contact them. <laughs> right. Like talk about being too in something to think about it critically. <laughs> yeah. And Jessica Fellows. But that seems creepy to me. Well, I don't know. If I, like whenever we have kids, I don't want them to be into the same stuff as me or like be this like no, I understand. auxiliary version of it. You yeah, know what I no, mean? I do. I do. It's like, go you do mean. your own crap. Yeah. But you know, like I know nepotism is real in a very effective way of getting ahead. Right. But I just ugh. like, yeah. go do something else. Jessica fellows. Jesus. Well, well, I guess we'll never have Jessica Fellows on for any kind of postmortem. <laughs> ah, you ruined it. Yeah, I totally thought that was real. We were so close. 
Her people have never heard of our people. <laughs> All right. We so should we should we people. get in? Should we start doing this? Uh we should. Yes. Sorry, that was like what a half a half an hour of just. <laughs> no, just just sixteen minutes. Remember we're fine. how Downton Abbey Reflections, the podcast, was <laughs> launched directly because that person hated us so much. Yes, I do. <laughs> I wonder if they're still going. I don't know. I guess we be. could find out. We could find out. Yeah. But. Well, if you're listening, Downton Abbey Reflections person, fuck you. <laughs> Without compunction, fuck you. You're an idiot. You don't understand irony or humor, and I bet that you don't even like Harry Potter. Oh, I said it. <laughs> wow. I know. Harsh. I know. I've had a lot of caffeine. So let's do this. Let's do this. So we see Lord Grantham walking with the children and some nannies and, uh, Tio! Tio! Tio is so cute, y'all. Yeah. She is so cute. Like, as crappy as a lot of this season has been, <laughs> Tio has been, you know, a salve. Yes. A ray of sunshine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see that he's walking with the family. Uh, Mary's the one on parasol duty this time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's saying that he's surprised that Edith would put Marigold in a school in London. Edith says people do send girls to school. Uh, and then Isabel asks if Marigold has any relations who should be kept informed. And Edith's like, uh... You know, if you're going to steal a baby this many times, you'd think you'd have more, like, just, you know, things at the ready right. to say. You would think that. But she doesn't. Anytime, like, there was a time that I called off of work and I told my supervisor that I had been in a car accident and banged my knee on, like, the ashtray in my car. (laughs) And I took a pair of nail scissors and I hacked up my knee. (laughs) Like, I'm just saying, that was pretty minor. Yeah. That was for a very low-level job. Yeah. And I committed to the lie. If you're going to lie, you got to be, yeah, you got to be all in. Yeah. Yeah, we're not even married. (laughs) Oh, so close. <laughs> I know. I'm just like uh, Dustin Hoffman at the end of Wag the Dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, Lord Grantham steps in to say that Marigold has no relations that they're aware of. Uh, McGee asked Edith if, if she's going to live in London. And Edith says yes. The magazine's going great. And she likes Miss Edmonds. Just kind of... This is a great idea. Yeah. Really great idea, it Edith. Is a really I great support idea. you. Mm-hmm. As a woman and as the whipping boy of this entire series, <laughs> get out. Yeah. Run. Uh, so yeah. Like, then Branson just says, a life change for Lady Edith Crawley is announced as the family takes a morning stroll. Well, he's pretending to be a journalist. <laughs> he does that sometimes. Oh my sometimes God. Sometimes he just says like, you know, puff piece captions for the photos he imagines <laughs> his photographer would take. It's just like, like talk about telling rather than showing. You like, know what else? Actually, that would be a really smart thing for him to do is become a fucking society page journalist. Yeah, that's Because true. we all know he no longer has any, like, criticisms about the upper class. Right. He has inner circle access without to... actually being a toff. Yeah, he's got inner circle access to both society and journalism now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. hey, Branson, maybe do something. <laughs> Get off your tweed-covered ass and contribute. <laughs> anyway, Matthew Good... <laughs> Matthew Good thinks that it's a good idea to move to London. Lord Grantham thinks it's a bit hasty. And Edith thinks she's been about as hasty as a glacier. I think everyone can agree. Yeah. She, bitch should have moved to London last season. Yeah. When she stole Marigold again and ran to London. Why did yeah. you leave? Yeah. It's Why London. Why didn't you just stay there? It's, it's London, man. 
she met Birdie in London. Yeah. Nothing interesting that has happened to Edith this season has happened at Downton Abbey except for calling Mary a bitch. Yeah. And she could have done that by phone. <laughs> That's right. She could have sent a telegram. Mm-hmm. You're a bitch. Stop. <laughs> You're a bitch. Stop. <laughs> Love, Edith. Stop. We hope to see you soon for tea. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Grantham asks if Edith would be happy living alone, and she says that she'll have Marigold, and anyway, she's a spinster, and spinsters live alone. And Lord Grantham and McGee look at each other, like, oh. I mean, dude, they know that. Look, at least she has Marigold. Yeah. Edith isn't unhappy. Yeah. Like, we all wanted things to work out for her and Bertie. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that is not Mm -hmm. at issue here. Yeah. You know, but she's got this great life. Yeah. And in she's, this scene, she's not upset. Yeah. It's, it's only Lord exactly. Grantham and McGee who are upset. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't even like her. Right. As the family sit around a picnic table, Matthew Good sits off on a bridge smoking a pensive cigarette. I was going to say something about how they foregrounded cigarette smoking mm-hmm. in this series. But yeah. they actually have, like, not any more than they have in the past. Yeah. I forgot how O'Brien and Thomas were just, like, mm-hmm. always smoking mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. They have foregrounded it for members of the upper class. Yes. Which we covered, I think, in the first episode I, of this series. I did the cigarette yeah, I think uh, right. fashion backwards. Yeah. Anyway, just pointing that out. Mm-hmm. As Mary walks over to him, Lord Grantham asks Isabel if the Dowager Countess is better, and Isabel says she's just tired, so I guess the Dowager Countess was sick. Apparently so. Great. Uh, You know what? Credit to Julian Fellows. There's one thing that we didn't actually see spelled out. We just had them say she was sick, so great. Let's see if any more of those come up throughout this episode. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Lord Grantham pities Danker, and Isabel says Danker can look after herself. Boo! (laughs) We're bringing up Danker and not Danker situations. I agree. Over on the brooding bridge, Mary asks Matthew Good if he's all right, darling. <laughs> he seems a bit down in the dumps, and he apologizes. Mary says not to apologize. She just wants to help. Matthew Good doesn't think she can. Mary says, of course he's still upset about the crash. Those things are bound to linger. Matthew Good says it's not what she thinks. He truly doesn't blame himself any longer. Uh, but it's taken all the fun out of driving, as he is now a crash widow. <laughs> He's like the token guy on all those shows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone thinks being a crash widow is only a women's issue. <laughs> but did you know that 5% of men are also crash widows? <laughs> Hashtag not all crash widows. <laughs> all crashes matter. <laughs> In the boot room. In the boot room been a while it has been a while but i've applied it to a lot of other rooms you have basically if it is a room i have sung that song (laughs) and much of this show takes place in rooms i know it's it's got more rooms than room the movie that's right that has mostly one room yeah it wasn't called rooms the movie that's the sequel (laughs) rooms (laughs) this time there's two of them Listen, I'm not going to speculate about what that movie would be about, so let's just move on. good point. Uh, Thomas sees Baxter, Andy, and Anna and says he's glad he's got the three of them at last because he's never had a proper chance to thank them for rescuing him. Uh, There's always been other people around. How long has it been since then? What day is this? Unclear. Very unclear. Sometimes, well, it's been, it's been a bit because... they do at the very end of this episode, they, te- they say, you know, December 29th, right. 1925. Yeah, they'll do that sometimes. But in this case, all we know, it's been a bit because... Mary and Matthew Good would have been off on a honeymoon. Mm. So, 
presumably yeah i don't know it's a second marriage yeah also as we see even in this christmas special julian fellows like when there's time gaps like the plot arcs just go at whatever pace like if they if he wants a particular plot line to ignore the time Mm -hmm. jump then it will yeah just for no reason anyway andy says that they were glad to rescue thomas and baxter says the good thing is you can stay Thomas says he's got a bit of breathing room, but he can't live on pity forever. And then Anna says to use the time. Try. <laughs> Come on. Men do that all the time. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, straight men. Right. Uh, Look at what Mr. Bates has been doing. He's been living on pity forever. That's a good point. Doing a great job of it. <laughs> yeah. Killing people all over the place. Mm-hmm. Anna says to use the time to try to understand what brought him so low and walks out. And Thomas gives that the facial expression it deserved. It was really just like. Well, Anne, like, hey, it's because he's gay and fired. <laughs> right. It's not that hard. And that's a very, like, nuanced post-Carl Jung kind of <laughs> advice to be giving. Yeah. And it was just kind of snippy as she was walking out the door, like, uh, just try not to kill yourself again, dude. Like, uh. <laughs> What advice would you give to somebody who's trying to kill himself? Well, don't do it again. In the Dowager Countess's room, uh, in the drawing room yeah. at the cottage, the Dowager is astonished as Isabel says that Larry Gray wrote her and asked her to tea, and she accepted. But when she telephoned, she was told that Larry Gray and Crookshank were in London. And then she pulls out a letter that she received today that says, Dear Mrs. Crawley, events have overtaken us, and we are not now free to keep our engagement. Yours, Amelia Gray. I'm going to keep calling her Crookshank. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because that's a fantastic name. It is such a good name. Yeah. That's actually the name of Hermione's cat in Harry Potter. Oh. Yeah. uh. Well, it's Crookshanks, but... And it's spelled in a less insane way than Crookshank, (laughs) but... The Dowager says how peculiar, and what did Dickie say? <laughs> Isabel says nothing. She knows that he went with them to London, but she hasn't heard a squeak since. I just love how, like, Penelope Wilton has such marvelous facial expressions, yeah. and I don't think we've even given them their due. Yeah. But yeah. she just sells the hell out of everything, and she it's does. all totally in character. Yeah. And I just also, I was just going to say, I like the fact that we gave Murdy the silly nickname Murdy, and it's actually less silly than the name that his peers actually refer to him by. Dickie. You, <laughs> if you're over 15 and people are calling you Dickie, do you have a micro penis? <laughs> you're just a rich British lord. The Dowager says that Isabel must beard Dickie in his den, and Isabel asks if that won't encourage him. And the Dowager says that her feelings do her credit, but never let tenderness be a bar to a bit of snooping, which I agree. Yeah, you need Don't info. let anything bar you from snooping, people. It's how we find out important facts. That's right. In Hughes's parlor, Hughes tells Anna that Baxter's willing to take over any or all of Anna's duties at any time, uh, because she's wearing her maternity maid's outfit, which Downton apparently had in stock. Anna says that that's kind, but she doesn't want to stop working yet, and Hughes says it's up to her. Anna walks out as Carson enters, and Carson says he has no complaints, but he finds it odd that a pregnant woman is working as a lady's maid. It's not what he's used to. Is that not a complaint, Carson? <laughs> like, I know what you're trying to do. He's trying to neg us. Yeah. With his, you know, buffoonery. Yeah. Carson, like, Carson had kind of veered into, like, just complete not giving a shit earlier this season, mm-hmm. I feel like, and he's veered back the other direction yeah. in these last few episodes. Hughes hopes that Carson's not used to it because before the war... Drink! (laughs) Maids were almost never married or they retired if they did marry. Carson asks if this is the future. Is this the end of (laughs) the 
And Hughes says, well, if he's asking, she thinks that the future is no ladies' maids at all, but they haven't quite got there. And Carson shudders. Like, there's still butlers in this future. Like, chill out. I can't believe I have to be the one to talk about this scene. <laughs> well, I think you feel more strongly about it. I do, it, so. and it's probably for the best. <laughs> God damn it, it makes me mad. Okay, out on the lawn. Mm-hmm. In full goddamn tuxedo. <laughs> They're all wearing tuxedos and fucking evening gowns. Yeah. Matthew Good shakes a cocktail shaker. Edith says it's a cheering sound. McGee says it's a break with tradition, but Matthew Good says it can be a new tradition. What? Dressing up like you're going to prom <laughs> to sit on your goddamn sprawling estate and fucking make a goddamn cocktail. This is just everything that is wrong with this show's approach to the rich. <laughs> like, there should, like... Communists should be storming them right no, now. No, they should all be shot. <laughs> like the homely liberal should be storming their entire thing with her all battalion of them. The of homely, un- oh, the homely liberal, that blackmailer. Yeah, you know. Oh like, my god. Yeah, everybody. You know, zombie civil's corpse. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Uh Pigman. <laughs> Pig, Mrs. Pigman. Yeah. The pig, the pigs themselves. The pigs themselves. Come on, I read Animal Farm. <laughs> pig man should come in riding his pigs. <laughs> Edith says, "Oh, and Branson hopes it's a new tradition. I hope the corpse of zombie Sybil eviscerates Tom Branson <laughs> and then shoots him in the head herself, so that he can't live in wedded zombie bliss with her because he doesn't deserve her anymore. He doesn't. Oh my God, what a fucking asshole! <laughs> Look, he just loves drinking." We all love drinking, Tom, but you don't have to wear a tuxedo to do it. You don't have to wear anything. I know. (laughs) Edith says she spoke with Miss Edmonds and might go to London the next day, and Matthew Good offers to drive her. Branson says he thought that Matthew Good had some time off. From what? From being uh, rich. Right. Like, you all have time off. You all have the rest of your time off. (laughs) Matthew Good says he has a few things to do, and Edith says she has to stop by the Dower House if Matthew Good can bear it. Like, why would the Dowager have any qualms with this guy? She co-signed on him last week. Look, they're all invested in the story that the Dowager is this fearsome, like, harridan or whatever. She used to be, but now that role is filled by Carson. (laughs) Who they never talk to. That's true. Yeah, nobody in the upper class at this point gives a shit about anything. I understand, but, you know, again, they're all bought into the story. Much like Julian Fellows. Like, once he's made a decision about a character, he assumes it remains true regardless of how he writes them. Or how they perform it. Yeah. yeah. In the kitchen, Andy says he was down at the farm doing Mason's books, so I guess he's also learned math. Like, he's just a genius now, apparently. Composing a symphony. Uh, Goodwill hunting. (laughs) Yeah. Patmore admires how Andy's come on, and Daisy says she's sure Mason was grateful. Thomas comes in and says that's enough love talk, and him and Andy head out. Daisy says, love talk? Uh, Uh, We also say that. (laughs) Right. Patmore says that Daisy could do worse. Daisy says she could also do a lot better. Um, I think Um, that's... That's yeah, reasonably accurate. Sure. She 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 did do worse. Yeah, how old is she? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's also true. Daisy was 10 when this started. <laughs> 
At dinner, Lord Grantham says he thought they might call him the Dowager the next afternoon, and McGee says she has a meeting at the hospital. Lord Grantham asks if she can't get out of it. Yeah. McGee says she doesn't want to because they're in the middle of a whole reorganization, and she's very involved. Edith says they better not tell the Dowager Countess that. Uh, Carson spills some wine to the sound of ominous music and apologizes. Lord Grantham says never mind, and Lord Grantham tells McGee that he'll see the Dowager without her, and she says to be her guest. I don't think, and this is a very modern uh-huh. thing, I don't think anybody's under any obligation to see their spouse's in-laws. I understand. Am I, like, living that reality? No. Yeah. Do I aspire to live it one day? Absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's it's also slightly different when the in-law lives on your land. I understand but, what you're saying. Yeah. But it's like, you know, Mitchie's put up with a lot of bullshit over the years. She has, that's Let true. Let her fucking glide into old age without having to be berated by this woman mm-hmm. who is crackers. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, the dowager has not got a foot to stand on as far as this hospital thing is concerned. Because it wasn't true. like she was even doing anything. Right. I know. She just was around being annoying mm-hmm. and potentially killing people with her <laughs> annoyance. That's also true. Back in the kitchen, Andy asks Patmore if Daisy is there, and Patmore says no, she's gone to bed. And Andy says good, because it's Patmore he wanted to see. Gasp! It's the ship that nobody saw coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, Patmore says to go on. Uh, and Andy asks if Daisy is interested in men. Padmore asks what he's implying. <laughs> she's more interested in pigs, I should think. <laughs> I'm asking if she's a women's studies major, if you know what I mean. She has been studying a lot. <laughs> she gets mad at stuff for no reason. Uh, Andy says that he just meant that she's so involved with her work and studies. Padmore is relieved. <laughs> Would she even know what a lesbian is i'm skeptical i feel like you know i feel like that was a mid one when i had my cataract surgery <laughs> i and i really don't know the answer to this but i just i mean i just feel like they were less visible as a you know identity yeah well because i mean you know and that's been historically true two women can live together in a mm. way well, and so can two men for that. You know, there is there is a cultural veneer of invisibility if you're not being vocal about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. People are just like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Anyway, um, in any case, don't Daisy's straight, everybody. So let's all <laughs> Thank God. Right. Now she's never tried to kill herself. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a warning sign. My late in the game Patmore impression, everybody. <laughs> Well, last episode, time to... There's one more. I could perfect it. Yeah, that's true. Patmore says, It's true that Daisy was determined to pass her exams, which she's done. And as for being interested in men, well, she's had her heart broken a few times. I'm like, has she? Hasn't she mostly been pursued slash forced to marry guys that she doesn't particularly like? Yeah, you know? And she liked, what's his name? Alfred? Alfred, yeah. I always think that he's uh, Landry. From Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yeah. I, he gets mentioned later. I had completely forgotten about him. I know. Him. Well, I guess he he's, like a, he's a chef or whatever now. Right. I know. And I I entirely forgot. The most amazing thing about Downton Abbey is how these adults <laughs> like have a sudden interest in a hobby and then are immediately able to execute it at the highest levels. Yeah. That's not how life works. No, it's not. I'm not good at basically anything that I'm interested <laughs> in. Except podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> We're aces. 
Andy says that he doesn't want to break Daisy's heart and asks if Patmore would say that he had a chance. Patmore says, well, everyone has a chance if you do a bit of wooing. Which she means she will browbeat Daisy (laughs) into being interested in Andy. Andy asks if she said anything about him and Patmore kind of splutters for a second trying to find a way to, you know, like, lie. She, you know... Anyway, Andy says that Daisy doesn't think he's good enough for her, and Patmore says, oh, get away with you, as opposed to contradicting that statement because she doesn't think he's good enough for her. Right? And, uh, I mean, Andy's no better than Daisy. I agree. In a sense. Yeah, but, you know, and I think, you know, Patmore just, Patmore wants to set people up, like, it's just in her nature. Just like Julian Fellows. (laughs) Well, yeah. Julian Fellows just can't seem to wrap his fucking brain around the idea that some people might be happy single. Yeah, that's true. Or that sometimes people just don't find partners. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Thomas reads a letter and Anna hopes it's good news. Thomas says, good enough. He's found a job. Anna says she's happy for him. If that's what he wants. Right. He doesn't... He's what Thomas out. once has not been a focus of this show for a really long time. Yeah. Thomas says that he wouldn't leave by choice, but it'll be good to draw a curtain over what the last few months. Wants. So it's what been a couple Thomas needs. <laughs> Whatever makes him Thomas sets you free. Uh so it's been a couple months mm-hmm. since his suicide attempt. Okay. So unclear how many months, but Yeah. There it is. Oh, right. Anna asks if the job is nearby, and he says it's on the other side of York, and Anna says, oh, well, they'll still see him, because, yeah, people sure... I mean, I used to go visit my old workplace sometimes. That was in the mall. Like, I was right. already there. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and to be fair, you didn't live with your coworkers for 20 years or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's true. So... Carson comes by, and Anna says that Thomas has found a job, and Carson says he's glad his efforts have paid off. He deserves it? <laughs> What? So has everybody just like drank mercury and forgot <laughs> everything that happened? Uh yeah, or they were just like, "Oh, he tried to kill himself. I guess we would be sad if he was dead, so let's reconsider." I don't know. Anyway, Thomas thanks Carson even though I would have given him a swift kick in the nuts. <laughs> Cuz you don't need his reference anymore, right? I guess not. <laughs> uh Mosley wanders by and says he was planning to go down to the village. Carson asks him to pick up some silver polish at Bakewells. Well, this show never stopped thrilling us with its adventurous storylines. It will not. <laughs> because then Baxter says, "I might come with you." Which <laughs> If you've listened to the instant take. Right. This is, like, honestly, I think you can go back to everything Baxter says to the entire series and just have her say, I might come with you. Like, she's so... Baxter, won't you please explain what caused you to steal those jewels? I might come with you. No, it's, uh, it's rough. It's what it is. No, fucking, fucking who gives a shit? Just yeah. show them in the goddamn village. Mm-hmm. We are not stupid. No. We know people get places. Yeah, we do. Uh, Fuck! Yeah, yeah. In the Dower House, Spratt sees Denker painting her nails and says that the Dowager won't like that. Denker says the color is very discreet. It's called nude. And Spratt says that that won't strengthen her argument. Zing! (laughs) Guys, I love Spratt. Yeah. Um, It took me a while to come around on him. I think you liked him before I did. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, he's a particular type of supercilious, I presume, gay man Mm -hmm. that I love. Yeah. (laughs) Both in life and in fiction. Mm -hmm. And I was reading, I think it was Slate 
Somebody sent this to us. It was a ranking of the most despicable characters on Downton Abbey. Okay, yeah. And they had him and Denker tie. What? No, and Spread is not... And they were like saying, oh, you know, he ruined Molesley's chances. I'm like, Molesley ruined Molesley's chances. <laughs> He's fucking Molesley. Yeah. I mean, granted, he did do that one time, but that was a long time ago. And since then, he's just been trying to collect his stamps. Yeah, and like... Danker's just been a cunt the whole time. For no she's reason. She's awful. Yeah. She's simply terrible. Yeah. And he's just gotten caught up in that crossfire because they live together. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Spratt is not despicable. He here, here. is perhaps not to everyone's taste. Yeah. But he's not despicable. Yeah. The bell rings. Danker looks at her fingernails in a panic and Spratt says that he'll go. So up in the drawing room, Spratt tells Edith to wait while Denker notifies the Dowager. But Edith says she came to see Spratt. Denker says, we're all ears. So she could just, like, she couldn't answer the door, but, but she, she could, could be there immediately. St- yeah. That's not how nail polish works, Denker. <laughs> Spratt says that Edith means alone. Denker says, well, if I'm not wanted. No, you're never wanted. Well, that, and that's Spratt's response is, when were you last wanted? <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Spratt. Yeah. You mean my butler any day. I'll never hire a danker. <laughs> That's right. Because my hair is very easy to manage. I don't even brush it. Yeah, I can attest to that. <laughs> well, it's usually less not brushed than this. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Edith asks if they'll sit down, and Spratt says, oh, if she's comfortable with that, uh, pointing out that they're not in London. They're in the Dowager's drawing room. And he looks around like as if she might suddenly appear. <laughs> Edith says that she's there as a publisher speaking with her author because they're considering expanding his column into a full page. So Spratt sits down. Okay, but I'll also say Edith is being a little bit incorrect here. I don't think it's appropriate for her to do this because it puts I, him in a really awkward position. I agree. I just, I don't know. I no, I, I think she's, she's not seeing past her privilege yeah. where like this is his workplace. Right. It may be her grandmother's house. But it's just not – he could still get in trouble even yeah. though she won't get in trouble. You know what I mean? Right. No, I do know what you mean. I think you're right. I think you're right. Anyway, Spratt says that, that that's good news. Edith asks if he can manage it, and he believes so. She says his tips on how to keep your husband happy have gone down particularly well. Frequent blowjobs. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the hall, a maid named Betty makes some kind of noise. How did you know her name was Betty? Because Dinker says, you know, be quiet, Betty. Oh. Yeah. Well, heck. Yeah. No, I know. Good job. No. So she's like, be quiet, Betty. I'm trying to listen. And Betty, like, gives her this look as she goes by. It's like, God, poor Betty. She's got a rough job and she has to deal with Dinker every day. Inside, Edith says that Spratt uh, has also been successful with his uh, advice for dressing for town and country, and could they have more of that? Spratt says that he is full of ideas when it comes to combining comfort and elegance. So I want a one-off just about how Spratt got so good at this. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously he's been working in, you know, uh, Tony Holmes right. for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just the fact that he, I guess he also probably reads a lot of magazines and does his research and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm just, I'm fascinated. No, I am too. And I mean, and- there's, you know, there's a long history of men writing these kind of things under female names. Yeah. Um, but like, I just, I think it's, I don't know. I, yeah. I love the Spratt as uh, Cassandra Jones oh, plotline. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 
Uh, that brings us to the first of our recurring segments in this two-part episode, Fashion Backwards, with our very own acetone authority, Kelly. Yes, I will be talking today about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, nail polish. Mm -hmm. I have been a nail polish enthusiast from a very young age, (laughs) ever since I got a Bonnie Bell peel-off bottle of nail polish, which made me feel very grown up and excited. I believe it. Uh, Anyway, so I was actually surprised. And number one, I thought we'd already covered nail polish Mm -hmm. uh, when it came up as a potential fashion backwards topic. But we definitely hadn't because I didn't know any of this stuff. (laughs) All right, then. Um, what I, I assumed that nail polish was a Western uh, invention and mm-hmm. that it was not that old of a practice, but it was actually uh, invented in China uh-huh. uh, around 3000 BC. Whoa. Yeah. And in those days, so the um, the colors that were available were kind of what you think of as like the basic nail polish uh, trifecta of sort of like, you know, peach, red, and pink. Okay. Um, you know, very, you know, comparatively subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then around 600 BC during the Zhu dynasty, the royal house would paint their nails gold and silver. Mm. And basically, if you were a lower class woman and you painted your nails that color, you could be murdered. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, remember that <laughs> next time you want to paint your nails gold and silver. Copper is my preferred material. Metallic, okay. In case anyone cares. <laughs> um, anyone looking for gift ideas? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I've found, you know, most of this stuff isn't necessarily conflicting, mm-hmm. but there are a little bit of uh, variations between what people say about these kind of things. But um, in 3000 uh, BCE, I'm sorry, BCE, I do try to say CE and BCE okay, it's for fine. people of all faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some cases, uh, Chinese women would soak their nails overnight in what was their nail polish. And it was this mixture of beeswax, egg whites, uh, gum, Arabic, and gelatin. And then they would add dyes, uh, generally made from flowers, orchids, and roses. Um, and I'm like, I just can't even imagine how that works. Because it's then, are you dyeing your entire finger? Right. Yeah. Agreed. Because, you know, I've dyed Easter eggs, and it's not pretty <laughs> when you do that. <laughs> um, yeah. And then also um, in 1600, in 600 BCE, mm-hmm. um, that's also when the long nail guards that you see um, okay. in ancient Chinese yeah, yeah. Uh, depictions and, you know, even photographs, because that mm-hmm. trend lasted well into i think the 19th century yeah if not think, beyond i think the dowager empress yeah and yeah. that's actually what i'm thinking of because yeah. the picture of uh the dowager empress Shitsi. Sishi, i think Shishi? i never say it right yeah um she's cool yeah <laughs> i like her i just can't pronounce her name yeah um now our chinese listener is going to be mad oh. um but she definitely has those nail guards on in that photo. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually in Babylon in 3200 BCE. So this actually predates. Okay. Right. Yes. This predates um, the Chinese practice around 3000. Mm-hmm. Um, the Babylonian soldiers would paint their nails green and black with coal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was supposed to strike fear into the heart of their enemies. And I will say. Uh, my ability to do a boss manicure either at home or with the assistance of a professional, I've always kind of thought of it as a way to intimidate people. Yeah. I mean, not always. It Sometimes true. it's no. for like my girlfriends to be like, oh my God, because that's also fun. <laughs> yeah. That's a form of intimidation. <laughs> it is a form of intimidation. Um, yeah. And in uh, China with this original polish, it would take hours 
uh-huh. for the polish to dry. So be thankful for your <laughs> 60 second Essie drops, everybody. <laughs> Okay, so then at the same time as the Chinese kind of pioneering all of this nail art, um, Egyptian women were also coloring their nails. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were using henna kind of to color their hands and do patterns and stuff like that. So uh-huh. Nefertiti, uh, Nefertiti, who I always want to call Nefertiri from the Ten Commandments, which uh, is not correct. No. Um, I just imagine the editorial process there. <laughs> Can we call her Nefertiti? Ah, change it up. Uh, Nefertiri. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Action. Charlton Char- Heston. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Cleopatra was actually the one who kind of broke from tradition of just dyeing their fingertips in mm-hmm. henna and doing it only on her nails. Oh, okay. Uh, and she did that blood red. Uh, wow. Yeah. Egyptian women Boy, would Cleopatra also Cleopatra use... really did enjoy invent fashion things. She really did. Yeah. You think it's just cute stuff that they say on Daria, but she was a fashion <laughs> pioneer. Um, and then Egyptian women would use berries sometimes to color their nails. Mm. And they did not appear to have a particular... So if you wanted to dye your nails deep red in Egypt, there could be a punishment for that. But they were a lot more lax than the Chinese in terms of what colors signified what. Gotcha. So there's not like a ton of innovation around (laughs) nail polish uh, in the intervening years. So Cleopatra is about 50 BCE. So Mm -hmm. you jump pretty much from... 3000 BCE to 600 to 50. And then there's no more innovations <laughs> apparently until the 1870s in France. Hmm. Uh, although in the 1830s, uh, King Louis manicurist was the first one to invent a nail file. Oh. Uh, and he used a dental tool, which I assume was also a file. You would think. Yes. Um, Oh, wait, here we go. This, I'm sorry. This is an infographic and I'm not thrilled with the way that they've set it up. Oh. Okay. In the 1400s, uh, Peruvians, also did a lot with their nails. Um, they would use sticks and natural dyes to carve eagles, basically, into their nails. So they were hmm. kind of doing tattoo yeah. in the nail. Hmm. So in 1878, the first manicure parlor was opened in Manhattan by a woman named Mary Cobb. Hmm. And uh, she was divorced and took her maiden name back, and she created her own line of products. And she actually wrote one of the first guys to doing a manicure at home. Hmm. And eventually, she held a monopoly on the country's emery boards and pink and red nail polish, wow. which is pretty impressive. Yeah. I assume she was part of the antitrust busting <laughs> in the 1900s. Um a trend that didn't catch on, and I think we can all see why. In 1897, there was a variety actress named Titania. It might be pronounced Titania, but who knows? Okay. Um, she pierced her nails with diamond-studded rings, and the Chicago Times Herald proclaimed that fingernail jewelry would be the next big fashion trend, but it never took off because that is annoying. Yeah. Like to have, and I've seen this before. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen this at like Claire's and places like that before. It's like, oh, like nail, ju- what? My, ju- my nails don't need jewelry. Right. I need them for scratching out the eyes of my enemies. <laughs> That's what they're for. <laughs> I need nail weaponry. Exactly. Okay, so nail polish or lacquer as we know it was not invented until the 1920s. Up until this point, nail polish had basically been paint. Okay. Kind of a matte finish, you know, nothing fancy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there was a makeup artist named Michelle Menard uh, in France, and she adopted the enamel used for cars to use on nails. Mm. Uh, And it was very popular among flappers. 
ah. appropriate. Um, and they would use this style. And I feel like I've seen this. I found a tutorial on Jezebel, but the moon manicure where you don't paint the top tip or that sort of half moon at the bottom of your nail where your nail bed mm. grows out of. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it's really cute, but it's also very time consuming to do. Yeah. Um, and Menard actually is the person who founded Revlon. Oh. And she started using pigments instead of dyes. And, uh, they, you know, started selling everything, you know, during the Great Depression. And then, you know, they expanded to lipstick and everything else around the era of World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, I have another thing that says that Q-Tex manufactured the first modern liquid nail polish. Okay. Uh, using nitrocellulose. Uh, which is also used to make car paint and film celluloid. So hmm. there's a bit of questions here. Yeah. I feel like that might refer to a clear nail polish, but it's it's not. Okay. I'm not a scholar. <laughs> right. Um, Opinions differ. Um, in 1976... So not a ton of innovation again. <laughs> uh, in 1976, a man named Jeff Pink, who was an American makeup artist in Hollywood, developed uh, the French manicure because there was a need for a manicure that movie stars could wear across a number of outfits within a given film. Mm. Um, and it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, nail polish was very popular in the 1940s, and the color red, again, used to kind of signify uh, high-status stars Mm, so like mm. rita hayworth is the one that they kind of pull out as somebody who used red manicures to be Mm. like hey look at me (laughs) um but i assume the french manicure had been invented a long time before that for some reason so it was actually relatively new yeah uh false nails were invented in 1957 by a dentist named frederick slack he broke a nail at his dentistry and he used aluminum foil and dental acrylic to create a faux nail and apply it to his finger. Why he felt he <laughs> needed that for dentistry, unclear to me. Yeah. Um, but he and his brother Tom invented and patented the first acrylic nail extensions. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, later in the 20th century, you get into gel manicures. People start, you know, eliminating uh, the heinous poisons that are in most <laughs> nail polishes, i.e. formaldehyde. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, acetone is the liquid chemical that is used to remove nail polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate ac- I use acetone, obviously, but it right. feels so creepy. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had a gel manicure, you have to soak your nails in acetone and it's liquid, but it does not feel wet. Mm. It's very creepy. Yeah. Very, very creepy. <laughs> um, and in terms of, you know, what's appropriate, I mean, obviously... We see Danker putting on nail polish, and we saw Gwen putting on nail polish. No, not Gwen. The other one, Ethel? Maybe. We've definitely seen one of the maids putting on nail polish on this show. Okay. Um, and Yeah, okay, yeah. I, yeah, you're right. So it, it was basically a post-World War One thing where nail polish became very acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have another site that says the French manicure debuted on Paris runways. Um, it still credits Jeff Pink. But, well, I, I mean, look, if he was trying to popularize it, he invents it in America, then gets some people on French runways to do it. Yeah. And then calls it the French manicure. Which is fine. It's branding. It's Kelly. not important. <laughs> um, you know, and starting in the 1970s, uh, men started wearing nail polish more frequently, you know, generally with like punk and glam and grunge. Right. Um, and, you know, I think it's become a lot more commonplace, but it's still a pretty feminine identified behavior. Yeah. I think, I mean, apart from like black... Yeah. You know, yeah. 
Although there's a lot of men who paint their toenails, but like secretly. Well, yeah. I'm only saying it because I know some of them. Fair enough. Um, but you know, it's, it is, it's a very bold statement to yeah. go out with non black nail polish as a dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, uh, cites Uma Thurman's nails stealing the screen <laughs> when she wore Chanel's Rouge Noir vamp polish in Pulp Fiction. And basically after she wore it in that movie, it flew off the shelves and was out of stock places. Oh, so wow. Yeah. Boy, we sure didn't have the internet then. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, now nail art is a thing. And, you know, I mentioned, um, gel polishes. Right. So, you know, things have evolved. Um, the Hunger Games had nail polishes. Yeah. The, the Hunger Games <laughs> did have nail polishes. Um, and I mean, again, I think about this a lot. The fact that nail polish is actually poison. Mm. And I use it all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but it is uh, considered by the EPA to be a household hazardous waste. So technically, you should toss your, you know, nail polish that you're getting rid of uh, at a hazardous waste facility. But the EPA basically, like, won't fine you, mm-hmm. which to me, I'm like, well, then they're going to keep... I will throw it away. Uh, yeah. Like, it's not... Okay. Um, it's also prohibited to paint your nails on airplanes, which is a good rule. Yeah. <laughs> because if you ever smell nail polish, it smells hideous. Yeah. Yeah. And to get back to the thing that I was trying to say before I got distracted with all of that, mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated by how toxic most cosmetics have been over time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more time spent now in developing products that are natural, quote unquote natural. Right. But I mean... But at least not deadly poison. Yeah. And when you talk about what the cosmetics were that were created in ancient Egypt, I mean, they mm-hmm. were poison. Mm-hmm. And we still put a lot of this stuff on ourselves. I yeah. mean, it's why animal testing is a thing. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, how poisonous can it be? <laughs> right. Um, but that said, there are a lot of like um, more... I don't even know if natural is a word, but like Butter London is a brand that I like a lot mm-hmm. that is free of formaldehyde and a couple of other things. There's mm-hmm. like a special name for it. It's like, it's like BPA free, except that obviously it's not that. Right. Um, yeah. And I just, but I mean, I don't even care. And that's the thing. Yeah. That's what always fascinates me about cosmetics is we want to look good so badly that we genuinely don't care about poisoning ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I have to say about <laughs> nail polish. If you want a good home manicure tip, here is what I do. Uh, I generally will paint my nails before I go to bed. You know, you want to give it a couple hours to kind of dry. <laughs> um, and I do use the SE um, instant dry drops. And I find that that actually is mm-hmm. very helpful. Um, but then the next day when you take a shower, you can peel off any of the excess. And it more or less looks professional level. Okay. Um, you'll get a little bit of uh, texture from your sheets potentially. But nobody ever notices that. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome, Tom. It's my last fashion backwards ever. It is your last fashion backwards ever. It was a good one. Had some helpful hints at the end. I'm here for our cousins. (laughs) That's right. I want them to live their best lives. (laughs) In the village, Mosley asked Baxter if she knew that shampoo comes from India. Baxter asks if he means the word. Mosley says he means the word and the fact. Stop it, Downton Abbey. (laughs) Stop tearing me up with these nonstop thrill rides. He's been all Twitter-pated ever since this happened. <laughs> Shampoo, you say? Uh, Teach stops by. He says he's glad he's caught them. I a- might come with you. <laughs> a Mr. Truen wants to retire at the end of the term. Teach says that the estate always reserves three cottages for the school, and he doesn't want to let the custom lapse. Yeah, because things are changing. 
They'll be like, oh, I say, let's put one of our pigs in there. <laughs> it was all very well before the war. <laughs> uh, so he wonders if Mosley might take on Truen's uh, cottage as well as some of his duties. Teach says that he has time to think, and Baxter says that he will think about because Mosley is just standing there like a dead fish. She says, I might go with him. <laughs> <laughs> so Teach walks off, and Mosley finally revives and says that he can hardly believe it. Baxter says he will think about it, and he'll make a sensible choice. Mosley asks why she says that. Baxter says because she doesn't seem to be able to do either of those things, but never mind. Boo! Yeah. Uh, this is his moment, and well done to him. This is his moment. And then she dissolves into a fog and this is blown away. is his time <laughs> when the momentum and the Mosley are in rhyme. <laughs> Every endeavor <laughs> he has made ever. I really actually want to see a montage of, like, <laughs> the best of Mosley. <laughs> Set to that song. Okay. So if anybody wants to do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> God knows I'm not going to do it. We've got one more episode coming, so we might mention it. And we still have an email address. No, that's true. Just for my edification. <laughs> Driving along, Matthew Good laughs about Spratt being Edith's agony aunt. And Edith says he must promise to keep it secret. Why does Edith keep trusting Mary's, like, lovers? Like, <laughs> Just having been married, we really are married. Yeah. I was kidding before no, when I said right. that we weren't. Yeah. I assume it's a matter of public record. Um, I guess you could go to some, you know, government office in Ohio somewhere. Warren County? Is that where we lived? We Butler lived County? in Warren County, but maybe we got we got married in Hamilton County maybe. We did, but I think we got our marriage no, license. No, we did. I remember the Yeah, we did. We, we need to stop because we're being as thrilling as Downton right. Abbey right Absolutely. now. Anyway, Sorry, everybody. Um, no, but she always becomes friends with them. They're like, oh, I like Mary. And she's like, well, you shouldn't. Like, <laughs> where, where is this going to go? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Good says, asks if the Dowager Countess will be furious. And Edith says she will if she finds out. She says not to tell Mary. And Matthew Good asks why not. And Edith says she'll make a thing of it. Matthew Good says that his Mary isn't her Mary. And Edith hopes it stays that way. And I do, too, because that would be creepy. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I, you know, you'd think that at some point any of Mary's partners would be like, hey, have you considered not being such a bitch to your sister? Yeah, because we all have to hang out all the time, apparently. Yeah. So. Uh, this would be so horrible. Yeah. Like, just the idea that they all have to live there all the time. Like, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, Edith's trying to get away. I know she is. At the Dower House, Denker asks Spratt if he values honesty. He says, of course he does. Denker says that he, he won't tell her why Edith was there, and Spratt says that he values honesty and discretion. Denker says that she wouldn't want to think he was keeping anything secret or wrong from the Dowager. Spratt says anything wrong involving Lady Edith Crawley, daughter of the Earl of Grantham. Are you mad? <laughs> Denker says she is not mad, but she is curious. And Spratt says that curiosity killed the cat, and he's going for his constitutional. And suddenly, Denker is killed <laughs> by curiosity. <laughs> yeah. And the cat, mm -hmm. ironically. Uh, uh, Spratt is basically Mr. Brainly from that episode of Futurama. <laughs> yeah. I'm a gigantic brain. <laughs> oh, how clever. In the kitchen... In the kitchen, 
I missed one earlier. <laughs> Annie says he's walking down to the farm if Daisy wants company. Daisy immediately says she doesn't know if she's going yet. Andy says, okay. And he leaves. And Mrs. Patmore says he only wanted to walk. Daisy says she's not stopping him from walking. Mrs. Hughes comes in and says Nanny wants to take the children out to the park, so she went sandwiches instead of a sit-down lunch. God, they're just all eating outside now. Yeah. It's like Julian Fellows just discovered picnics. Well, it's the one week a year when the weather is nice in England. Oh, that's actually a good point. Yeah, which is, you know, when every season of Downton is set in that week. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore says fine and offers Mrs. Hughes some tea. Carson comes in and also gets tea. He's looking for Molesley and he leaves. Mrs. Hughes says, huh. <laughs> we say, why? <laughs> this could have been an hour long. No, I know. Well, and I, I said something like this on the instant take, but I just imagined, like, it's just so underwritten, too. And I just imagine Neem, like, calling up Julian Fellows and being like, so we start shooting the Christmas special in a week. You've, you've got the script about wrapped up, right? And Julian Fellows is like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Gareth. It's, it's ready to go. And he looks down at a piece of paper that just says... Mary gets hair dryer question mark. <laughs> in the Carson cave, Hughes comes in and asks when Carson was going to tell her about the shaking. What shaking asks Carson as he pulls his hands below the desk. He's the worst liar on this show, He's which not- is saying something. <laughs> yeah. Hughes says that she is his wife and his secrets are safe with her. He says, what's shaking again? And Mosley comes in, says that he ran in to teach. Carson assumes that he wants Mosley to take more lessons. Mosley says yes, and he's offered him a cottage. Carson says, well, then you're giving your notice? And Mosley says he's just looking for advice. Carson says that he should check with Branson that the family approves him taking the cottage. And Hughes says, heaven forfend, he should have a bit of good luck without checking with the holy family. Molesley says he just wanted to put Carson in the picture. Carson says he appreciates it, and Molesley leaves. Carson says that Molesley's going, Thomas is going, and only Andy stands between him and Armageddon. And Hughes has nothing to say to this insanity. So you spent the whole year yeah. trying to fire Thomas. Yes. Only Driving speak. him to suicide in the process. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I, I. Don't worry. No, you, I have nothing else to say. You can continue to be baffled and outraged the whole rest of this episode. Oh, good. So, yeah. At the Dower House, Danker shows Mary and Lord Grantham in, and Mary greets the Dowager. The Dowager says she was beginning to forget what they looked like. Lord Grantham says he's glad she's back on her feet, and Danker asks if he'll have tea. The Dowager asks if he'll stay to drink it. <laughs> I'm just getting my licks in where I can. No, I know. Mary says, of course they will. They were (laughs) definitely not planning to just leave. (laughs) So they sit and Lord Grantham says that Edith's gone to London and Dowager assumes not to see Bertie. Lord Grantham confirms. The Dowager says that it's sad and she bets that he regrets it. Lord Grantham says that he's painted himself into a corner. The Dowager asks why men can't ever paint themselves out of a corner, which is a very good question. And asks uh, and mentions that it's just such a waste for the both of them. The Dowager asks what Mary is thinking, and Mary says the Dowager's given her an idea, nothing to trouble her with. Lord Grantham says he's afraid McGee couldn't come. The Dowager asks why. Lord Grantham doesn't say anything, and the Dowager says, not to be mysterious, it's the last resort of people with no secrets. <laughs> Mary says she's chairing a hospital meeting. Swallow it, Granny. It's stuck in your crawl long enough. 
are we still talking about this? Yeah. Well, to be fair, the Dowager did like leave for the south of France in a huff over it. Yeah, so but then she came back. Well, I understand that. I think she should have sailed the seven seas <laughs> and left all these losers behind. Joined a pirate band. The Dowager says she gobbled it up long ago. It's Lord Grantham who has difficulty swallowing these days. And I don't understand this reference. I don't understand like, it, is it either. Because he's mad at her for going to things? I guess that and could how be would she inter- even know Exactly. That? Like, that's, like, is she making fun of him for that blood vomiting situation? Like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, that's poor taste. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> even for me. <laughs> At Murdy House, Murdy greets Isabel and says it's a lovely surprise. Isabel says she was worried. He's kept so quiet. Uh, she asks how he got on in London, and Murdy, who is not looking good, by the way. Yeah, his makeup is pretty bad. Yeah, he says he didn't want to bore her until he knew the whole story. Is- Murdy, I think, is the most English person on this show. He is. He's delightfully so. He's kind of like if Bertie Wooster was like a little less stupid and a little less, little less ambitious. Yeah, yeah, agreed. He's just like, oh, I guess I'm a tall fake. Yeah, and no, and he's just, he's chill about it and... Just so dumb, and I just love it. He's like, oh, medicine. <laughs> I say. Fascinating. <laughs> Murdy says that he hasn't been feeling well. He's had a sore tongue, and then he started to get a sort of tingling. <laughs> Isabel asks. <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, he says, too. What a what an odd thing, eh? Uh, Isabel asks why he didn't tell her, and he didn't want to bother her. She says she's bothered now. Murdy says that Amelia took him to Harley Street, and it seems he has anemia. Isabel says, oh, well, it's a nuisance, and he'll have to fuss about his diet, but he'll be fine. But Murdy says, not quite. It's pernicious anemia. They ran some tests and telephoned him on Monday. He says he's not too downcast. He's had a good inning, seen and done a lot. He says he should have liked to have been married to Isabel, but no man can have everything, and at least they're friends again. Isabel says, yes, they're friends again. This... This is why we kept doing this goddamn podcast. Yeah. Like, that's so no, great. It is so great. Tom's the most upset. I He's am crying. the most upset. It really, I don't know, man, just the way, and again, because it's Murdy and because he's this just nice, dumb guy, and he really is like, you know what? I've, I've been old for a while. Something like this is going to happen sometime. And, and like, he, you can tell that he means it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, He's got the best attitude toward life of anybody on this show. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, and, I, and then that's why he's such a great match for Isabel in his way, because mm-hmm. they're both very plucky. Mm-hmm. They are. Absolutely. Um, and I was going to add, too, uh, I did look up, because I was curious about what exactly pernicious anemia was. Which I think we talked about on the instant take as well. That's probably true. Uh, but in case you're wondering, it's uh, actually uh, an ability to manufacture uh, what eventually became discovered and called B12, vitamin B12. Uh, and right at this moment, they were developing a treatment and cure for it, which unfortunately for a while was eating half a pound of raw liver every day. Which, uh, or alternatively, drinking liver juice. So, I mean, better than dying? Yes. But, yeah. I can't even (laughs) form words right now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. (sighs) All right. Well. (laughs) Yeah. But that was... I'm also now horrified because I recently looked up how to make, uh, pate foie gras. (laughs) And it's not cool. Yeah. So... Well, let's move on from liver entirely. Yeah, I say. let's please do that. Yeah. Edith and Matthew Good walk into her flat and he says, I must say, it's very nice, Edie. 
because I guess he just can come in and give you a nickname like George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He calls Lord Grantham Cooter. <laughs> he calls Branson Fart Blossom. No, Turd Blossom. Turd Blossom. That was what it was. Yes. That's a great nickname. You can say what you want about George W. Bush, but his nicknames were pretty great. And people say fraternities haven't done anything good for this country. <laughs> Uh, Matthew Good asks if Edith manages on her own, and she says a char lady comes every morning, and her niece helps when Edith is entertaining. Where is? The, can we not see Edith having a dope ass party? I agree. Everybody drinking absinthe and shit. Mm-hmm. Matthew Good helps her with her coat and says it's pretty simple compared to Downton. And Edith reads a note and says, "What a treat! Aunt Rosamond's invited me to dine at the Ritz." I'm like, can't you just dine at the Ritz anytime you feel like it? Uh, no, you have to be invited by an aunt. <laughs> So that's what putting on the Ritz <laughs> She asks if Matthew Good wants tea. Does she make it or just the charwoman? Uh, is a- she there right now? <laughs> Where is the charwoman? Char lady is inside the house. <laughs> um, he says he ought to get back to the flat? His, His flat? flat? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize he lived somewhere. I thought he just moved <laughs> out of the wall whenever the plot required it. <laughs> Edith asks why he's in London. He never said. And he says he'll have to tell everyone soon. He's thinking of giving up driving. Like, hasn't he already given it up? Yeah. Like, like. Have- I haven't seen you driving. <laughs> right. Well, he specifically says racing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although, let us not forget, Matthew Good was not race. Uh, Matthew Crawley was not racing when he inexplicably died. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Maybe he was. Maybe that was an impromptu drag race he challenged that truck to. <laughs> we just didn't see that part. Edith asks if Mary knows, and he says that she knows he's lost the joy of it. Edith says, since the crash. <laughs> Matthew Good asks if it's so obvious that he's a crash widow. And it's like, dude, your best friend burned to death in front of your eyes. You were affected by that. That's not like a difficult case to solve. Even Lord Grantham has probably figured it out. And he is an idiot. Yeah, that's probably true. Edith says that Mary won't mind that he's, you know, given up driving. And Matthew Good says maybe, but she won't like her glamorous ace of a husband transformed into a man who sits about the house with nothing to do. Mary... Never thought you were a glamorous ace of a husband. No. Nor does she care about you at all. Yeah. See, and again, this is one of those many things where if this was a comment on, you know, men's blindness towards women's thoughts and views, that would be one thing. But instead, it appears to be that Matthew Good is – that his opinion that she is disappointed in him is – Fact. Fact. And again – Mary Crawley does not care about other people. Right. Like, you want to talk about a sociopath on this show. Yeah. And we haven't because you love her. <laughs> I do. But she, I don't even know if, because well, I mean, she just, I guess maybe more extreme narcissist a la 30 Rock's definition. Yeah, yeah. But it's like she has never in her life, except briefly when Matthew was in the war, mm-hmm. considered anybody's thoughts or feelings but her own. Yeah. She doesn't care. She can't be bothered. Yeah. And she only bothers so she can go back to not bothering. <laughs> yeah. When she doesn't feel like she should. She feels like it's, you know, beneath her. Well, and 
that's the other thing. It suggests that somehow anything about Matthew Good, other than the fact that she wasn't in love with him, yeah. was the reason that they weren't together. Yeah. Like, she just didn't like him that much and right. she didn't like the racing piece yeah so for him to now say she only liked him because of the racing piece when that was the very thing that she specifically stated that she didn't like <sighs> yeah i just i don't know i feel like there had to have been so many like hushed conversations on set <laughs> about all of this yeah like and they're just like oh my god like you think we're happy this show's ending. <laughs> yeah. Like, I might bloody well be able to do a show that makes sense. <laughs> At any rate, Edith says that Matthew Good must find something to do, and Matthew Good agrees. I don't... I, uh, why should he do anything? Yeah. None it, of the rest of them do anything. You won, buddy. Yeah. Edith does stuff because like, Edith wants to do stuff. McGee does stuff because she wants to do stuff. Everybody else is just having martinis on the lawn in yeah. tuxedos. Drink on the lawn, bang your beautiful wife, live it up. Yeah. He seems to get along fine with her kid. Yeah. Like, fuck off, dude. <laughs> it's not clear that he's met her kid. I think this is later in this episode. Okay. Oh, yeah, because there is, there's that scene where he and Tom have taken the kids to the oh, state right. office. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. And Sibby says, I'm working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the servants' hall, Carson brings Anna a package and a note for Thomas. Daisy asks what the package is. Anna says it's a hairdryer for Lady Mary. Daisy asks why not just dry it with a towel and comb it out. But Anna says that with a dryer, you can smooth and shape the hair, and she thinks it'll be useful. Daisy suddenly realizes that she's never changed her hairstyle and asks if she can hold the hair dryer and says that it's heavy. Great. All right. Great. <laughs> Carson asks what that thing is, and Anna explains and adds that Mary wanted it, so Carson's like, oh, harumph. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas tells Carson that Lady Styles wants him to start on Monday unless Carson needs him to work out his notice. Carson says that they won't insist on it. Bates says, Downton Abbey without Mr. Barrow. And Anna says not to be ungenerous. Padmore yeah, because being generous is a thing Bates can do. <laughs> Padmore asks if he's really going, and Thomas says even good things must come to an end. Has it been that good? And even things that used to be good, but have been kind of staggering along for the last three or four seasons. <laughs> I should really read ahead to <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <Pat> <laughs> <laughs> Padmore, more realistically, says that she doesn't know if Thomas is a good or a bad thing, but they've been together a long time. I think of him as the thing, like a character in a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> One fish, two fish, red fish, gay fish. <laughs> That's on the most banned books list every year. <laughs> Thomas says on that note, he'll go check the dining room. Andy, who is also there. In the room! That's right. Tells Daisy that she doesn't need to change her hair. Daisy asks if he's a fashion expert now. And he's like, yes, I put on a collection in the fall runway. Like, <laughs> You don't need to read to be a fashion designer. <laughs> That's right. Just ask Anna Wintour. <laughs> um, okay. I hate this for the record. Which do the you The Daisy hate? Andy Okay. That's, I hate it. I, I haven't liked anything Daisy has done for perhaps the last four years. Right. I dislike it. I... I hate it less than you do. Okay, here's what I'll say. I would hate it less if they discovered a mutual affinity for each other and moved toward a sensible relationship versus mm -hmm. this, which is them hating, spoiler alert, <laughs> 
hating each other for most of this episode and then being like, oh, well, we should probably get married. Like, See, I, I interpret it differently. I, it's still – it's poorly handled. I, I agree. But I think there's a different interpretation of it that's less awful. Okay. But we'll see how it develops and, you know, decide how we feel. At the Ritz, <laughs> Rosamond asks Edith if Mary and Matthew Good are working out. Edith says as far as she can work out, they are, although he's too good for Mary. She says it might be better if he found something to do. Rosamond asks if he'll keep driving, but then they arrive at their table and Bertie is there. <laughs> Edith asks how he knew she'd be there. Bertie and Rosamond look at each other. Edith asks if Rosamond's leaving and she says, yep, I'll telephone <laughs> you in the morning. Bertie and Edith sit down and Edith asks if this is a setup, if somebody tipped him off and he says it was Mary. Yeah. Edith asks what Mary did and he says she booked the table and got Rosamond to play along. They thought Edith might not come if it was him. Edith says they were right, and Bertie asks if she'll stay now. A waiter comes up and asks if he can bring them menus and drinks. Ah, any birthdays? <laughs> Anniversaries? Special occasions? <laughs> Bertie asks for champagne, and Edith, which is pretty optimistic. It is, yeah. Edith says she doesn't know what she's doing there. Uh, he just told you. You were tricked. <laughs> Bertie broke her heart, and she doesn't blame him exactly, but Bertie cuts her off to say he wants her back. Edith says nothing's changed, and Bertie says he's changed. Edith says he hasn't said a word to her about it, which is correct. Yeah. Uh, and she doesn't think he would have if Mary hadn't telephoned. Bertie says that he would have. Edith asks, what's different? She still has Marigold. Bertie still has his mother. Bertie says that he never told his mother that they split up, but Edith says that they have. Bertie asks if she'd believe him if he said he couldn't live without her. Edith says that he's done a pretty good job of it lately. Bertie says he's actually done a very bad job. And oh my God. And I meant to look up this guy's name and remember it. <laughs> but he just plays this so well. Yeah. Yeah. And no. the idea that anybody is this, you know, torn up about poor old Edith. <laughs> yeah. There's hope for us all, ladies. <laughs> in fiction. <laughs> The waiter comes back with the champagne. It remains awkward. <laughs> yeah. Edith asks what Bertie is asking, and he says he wants her to marry him. Edith says just like that, and Bertie says whenever she chooses, but that's what he wants. Edith says if she agreed, which is a big if, would they tell his mother about Marigold? Bertie says if they tell her, they'll have to break with her, and he wouldn't want that. Edith says even without her, uh, if people know the truth, there could be gossip, and is he ready for that? Bertie hopes to avoid it, but he's ready if they can't. And the only thing he's not ready for is a life without her. And Edith is moved. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah. under the circumstances at the time, I don't think you can really ask for better than this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's, again, he knows the, the reality of the situation. Like, you know, you're not, there's no he's secrets at this point. <laughs> the situation. In the boot room. In the boot room. Thomas asks, Thomas asks Baxter why Edith called so late. Baxter doesn't know. She was with McGee when Carson knocked and Lord Grantham went down to take the call. Thomas says that Edith never has much luck. Baxter says it's not like him to care. Thomas asks if she remembers Anna saying he should try to understand what brought him so low, and he's been thinking, and he thought he might try to be somebody else at his new position. Baxter says, well, we do change as our life goes on, or could if our past would let us. <laughs> this bitch. <laughs> I might come with you. <laughs> Thomas says that he listened to Anna and she should listen to Molesley. Forget about Coyle. She thinks the strongest. Who? <laughs> yeah. 
She thinks the strong decision would be to see him, but she's wrong. The strong decision would be to take away his power and leave him behind, and that is his parting lesson to her. Baxter says she wonders if he's right, and Thomas says, I am right, just adorably. <sighs> Rob, James Collier? Collier James. God, damn it. God, we had it. <laughs> we had it. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're too good for this series. Yeah. You're, yeah. I would say... You know, maybe we'll get to this in a postmortem, but I would say of all the people on the show who've been given ungodly, mm-hmm. thankless horseshit to wade through mm-hmm. in this series, he is just the biggest victim of that. Yeah, because agreed. he was shoehorned into an anachronistic plotline mm-hmm. that didn't actually go anywhere. Yeah, and didn't really allow him to explore anything particularly interesting. Right. Right. And then again has just limped around yeah. more consistently than Bates. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's like you know, I think that Brendan Coyle and uh, Joanna Froggett have had similar problems, but I don't think either of them is as capable an actor as him. Right. Certainly not Brendan. And Coyle. I mean, he's managed to take every ridiculous curveball they've thrown at him and make it believable and human. Yeah, which I don't feel is the case for yeah. Joanna Froggett and Brendan Coyle. No, his this whole like he is one of the standouts of this Christmas special, mm-hmm. even though his storyline is as ridiculous as it is. But he like he he's just really good at it. He's excellent. Yeah. In their bedroom. In the bedroom! In the bedroom! (laughs) One more episode. Yeah. Lord Grantham says, you're not going to believe it! Oh my god. Yeah. If I believe that Julian Fellows was capable of (laughs) self-awareness, this would be a master stroke. Yeah. But this is all Elizabeth McGovern and uh, Hugh Bonneville. Mm -hmm. McGee says, she's pregnant again. <laughs> Lord Grantham says, no. McGee says, she's been arrested for treason. <laughs> Lord Grantham says, no. She's back with Bertie, and they're going up with them to Brancaster to meet his mom and announce the engagement. McGee is delighted, asks if uh, the mother knows about Marigold. Lord Grantham says, no, and she's not going to. That must be Bertie's choice. McGee asks when they're going. Lord Grantham says, Friday. They want to get on with it, and so does he. Uh, McGee says she has a big meeting on Friday and Lord Grantham says he doesn't often insist but he insists now this is her child who's hardly known a day's happiness in 10 years McGee says she doesn't need the Gettysburg address she'll go Lord Grantham says he feels like he's in competition with the hospital and usually loses it almost makes him wish the Dowager Countess had triumphed this is an awkward time to express this opinion it is McGee says never mind Edith's going to be happy just think about that and Lord Grantham says she's right of course hurrah Hurrah. this is great yeah well, and it's just fun when we get to see McGee and Lord Grantham having fun yeah it is doesn't happen that often but they're they're great together not as great as Hugh Bonneville and any child actor. True. But. The Servant's Hall. You know, they haven't said Donk very much in this series. No, that's true. I feel like they did it once. Yeah. We, like, it was right when Sibby came back. Yeah. And then they never called him Donk again. Boo. We love Donk. <laughs> Bring back Donk. That's right. Return of the Donk. <laughs> Return of the Donk. In the servants' hall, Anna's happy for Edith. Hughes wonders when the wedding will be, and Padmore says a wedding. That's all she needs. It's your fucking job! <laughs> Yeah, and that's an annoying part of it. Daisy says that she likes weddings. Carson tells Thomas that he'd better say goodbye to Lord Grantham before they leave because he'll be gone when they get back. At the Dower House, uh, the Dowager tells Isabel she's sorry. This is a hard one. Yeah. 
Isabel says, it seems odd to say it, but I find I'm desperately upset. She says she keeps bursting into tears. Yeah. And the dowager says, why wouldn't she? Uh, because she's in love with Murdy. Isabel says that phrase conjures up dance cards and stolen kisses and mama waiting below in the carriage. Not two old funny duddies who can barely manage the stairs. I didn't cry this much when we watched it. <laughs> I know. The dowager says it's good to be in love, whatever age. Man, Julian Fellows, quit acting like the dowager hasn't developed as a character. Yeah. And all of your characters. They know she has. Yeah, yeah. Isabel says that she can't think why she turned him down. She must have been mad. I mean, there were some very good reasons. Right. Uh, Larry Gray and Crookshank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, plus the other one. Yeah. No, I know. Who's the dowager anyway. quotes Shakespeare and says, the course of true love never did run smooth. So she can't really take credit for that. That's <laughs> like quoting Oscar Wilde and pretending you're witty. I- <laughs> Isabel asks if the dowager ever fell in love after Prince Karagin, and the dowager says she must know by now. She never answers any question more incriminating than whether or not she needs a rug. <laughs> Which is a weird thing to decide to say there, but that, it, that is. it bizarrely works. Yeah. It shouldn't work. Yeah. Unless that's also a Shakespeare question, uh, quotation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd also like to say that needing a rug can be very incriminating, as I know from watching Deadwood. That's also true. <laughs> <laughs> or room. Yeah. Room. yeah. Call back. <laughs> Bam. Out front, the cars are getting packed, and Baxter tells Mosley that she's made a decision. She won't go and see Coyle. Who? <laughs> she's... <laughs> she says she's putting him out of her life entirely. Was he ever in her life? Uh, once. Boy, how bad do you feel ago. for the British actor who got cast as Coil? <laughs> They're like, oh, uh, about that. That was going to be his big break. <laughs> it's going to be a spinoff called Coil. <laughs> Brendan Coil would make a cameo. The bastard thief. <laughs> Yeah, uh, mostly asked if she can stick to that plan, and she says she thinks so. Uh, might... There's not the internet. I think it'll be pretty easy. <laughs> I might not go with you. <laughs> Coyle's got no power over her now, and she won't give it back. Mosley says she's reached her decision. Now he needs to reach his, uh, and wanders off. I guess to go to his decision-making tree. <laughs> <laughs> Baxter tells... An apple fell on me head once, and I started to go bold. <laughs> so now I come here every time I've got a decision to make. <laughs> figure i'm already bald <laughs> baxter tells thomas to be strong in his resolution and she knows that he'll be happier thomas says that she had faith in him when he had none and he's grateful grateful and they shake hands baxter kisses him on the cheek and then bates looms up thomas says what do you say mr bates bates says he'd rather part his friends and enemies and then they shake hands so fantastic Let's just not even... I mean, they've barely spoken for, like, four seasons. I know. And also, who cares if they part his friends? You're not going to give him a reference. Yeah. The family all walk out. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Lord Grantham tells Mary to tell Matthew Good they're sorry that they missed him. He hopes he's all right. Mary asks why. Uh, Lord Grantham says no reason. He's just been worried about him since the crash. See? He did figure it out. Mary says Lord Grantham is cleverer than he looks, uh, which he would have to be. Right. Lord Grantham says that's a relief. McGee notices Thomas waiting, and Lord Grantham turns to him. Thomas says, I'm not going to get through this. <laughs> right. Thomas says he wanted to thank them for everything. Mary says he isn't going now. 
He says Sunday morning, but Lord Grantham says they've had some adventures while he was there. <laughs> Remember when Thomas stole his dog? Nobody even knows about that. <laughs> I he know. Got away with it. I know. Thomas says he learned a great deal while he's been there. <laughs> don't steal a dog, for starters. It's a good lesson. Also, don't try to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham says he's lectured him at times. He hopes not too harshly. <laughs> and I hope you'll be reconsidering this whole gay thing. <laughs> Thomas- very well at school. <laughs> Thomas is on the contrary. He will begin his new position with a new spirit, and he has Lord Grantham to thank. Okay. I think the three people who saved your life when you were dying. I know. Well, Lord Grantham is also very, like, bemused at that sentiment. Lord Grantham is glad it's if it's been rewarding on balance. <laughs> Thomas says he arrived as a boy. He leaves as a man. A hall boy? Yeah. He asks them to give his best wishes to Edith and McGee. <laughs> McGee delivers an all-time classic McGee reading like if this had been said at any point previously instead of luncheon out we might be saying this we'll always be so grateful to you for saving her from the fire number one who show of hands who remembered that this place caught on fire not that long ago either was it this season it was it was the premiere episode i had completely forgotten uh anyway thomas says he saved lady edith for better things great idea you know what edith should hire thomas to be her fucking butler flat oh yeah there you go butler flat flat butler Let's call the whole thing off. I need to do butler flat. <laughs> Stat. Lord Grantham says, very good luck. Thomas thanks him, uh, seeming surprised. They shake hands. And Lord Grantham says, now they must get started. The cars drive off. Branson is holding Tio. And it's worth mentioning, Lord Grantham just <laughs> handed Tio <laughs> to, to, Branson. to Branson. And he, like, there's these great reaction shots of, uh, Alan Leach just like, mugging like he's an extra in the courtroom scene in a community theater production of to kill a mockingbird anyway branson says he hates good boys uh well they'll probably be back because nobody ever leaves on this show (laughs) mary says there seem to be too many of them these days and i'm like you could have just had them say that line in the trailer and not crowbarred it into the scene where it makes no sense sure it does yeah yeah and actually they're all saying goodbye they're definitely coming back. Right. They is, own the house. That's right. Like, they're just taking a little trip. Like, this isn't... And Thomas is still right there. You've got till Sunday. <laughs> right. Got a whole weekend, you dickbags. <laughs> in the kitchen, Daisy looks at her reflection in a pan and says that she's such a frump. Um, this is not a good place to look at your reflection, Daisy, because yes. it's distorting you like a funhouse mirror. Yeah. Uh... And it's like copper. Like, it's just a bad, bad situation. But anyway, she says her hair, her clothes, she looks the same as she did 10 years ago. Which is true. Yeah. She really does. She does. Which is kind of suspicious given that 10 years ago she was like in her teens and now she should be in her mid to late 20s. Anyway. (laughs) Patmore wishes she looks the same as she did 10 years ago. I think she also does. I agree. Uh, Daisy asks if rhetorically if she would give herself a job and andy who is also there says that he'd give her a job if you know what he means a handy (laughs) yeah i mean basically patmore asked if andy's there for a reason yeah sexual innuendo (laughs) it's like this is my job to also be in the room (laughs) it's in the description (laughs) andy says that carson says that they're going into the library and patmore says well there's a tray off you go 
Patmore asks Daisy if she knows what her problem is. Daisy says she supposes she soon will. Poor Daisy. Yeah. Poor Sophie McShara. <laughs> yeah. That's such a great line reading and such a stupid plot. <laughs> yeah. Patmore says that Daisy despises anyone who thinks well of her. She says if a man likes her, she thinks he's rubbish. Daisy says that's not true. Patmore says that she was mad for Alfred when he only had eyes for Ivy, uh, which again, I completely forgot that Alfred existed, and so I had to look up about the cooking contest. He's like contest. the Baxter of men. <laughs> he, he kind of is, yeah. Anyway, Patmore says that when Alfred made a play for Daisy, she'd have nothing to do with them. Daisy says that that's different, and Patmore asks how, and Daisy has no answer. The cars all arrive at Brancaster, McGee, and Lord Grantham share a look because this place makes Downton Abbey look like a pile of shit. It really does. On every level. Yeah. Like, Downton Abbey might as well be, like, that shack that Thomas was storing all that plaster of <laughs> or whatever. Right. Like, it looks amazing. Yeah. And I know we've been to Brancaster before. Right. But, but that was just But never with as an a... eye toward anybody that we cared about living there. Right. Exactly. They were just visiting. But, it, yeah. But it is, in fact, a castle shocking yeah uh inside somebody shows lord grantham and mcgee into the yellow drawing room lord grantham says it's quite something mcgee says as long as edith's happy and it, i mean it is even the interior design yeah is phenomenal yeah so you know get your shit together people who own high clare castle <laughs> they're announced and birdie and his mom greet them mrs pelham is sorry well she'd be the um well shit what is her <sighs> okay so here's a legitimate I don't question think she... so she has probably only recently moved in here Yes, and I believe that that is semi-addressed. Okay, later. that's fine. I yeah. just realized that she would be Mrs. Pelham because I was going to say, isn't she like a right? But she would something re- now. Yeah, but not really any more than Isabel. Yeah, she was wouldn't be, be the something. dowager. Uh, what is Edith? Uh, Marchioness. Right. So she's not that. Yeah, she's just this lady. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, she's sorry she wasn't there to greet them and hopes they were made comfortable. And Lord Grantham says, to a legendary degree, and Edith comes in and greets her parents. It's weird. And again, we don't know who's going to get the Abbey Awards, but she has such an overbite later Mm -hmm. that it's kind of shocking that she's not part of the nobility. Yeah. Well, that's not completely unheard of on this show either. Well, because I guess um, Matthew Good doesn't have a title either. Right, right. I, I just always get a little confused when they start not having titles. I'm yeah. like, well, why are you here? <laughs> I understand, yeah. This didn't used to fly. <laughs> Dinner at Downton, where it's just Branson, Mary, and Matthew Good. Branson asks if Matthew Good will miss driving, and Matthew Good says no, and in fact, he feels lighter already. Mary says that she's thrilled and can't pretend otherwise. Uh, again, clearly... You know, I'll say this much for this plotline. Mm-hmm. You see, oftentimes, plot lines about women giving up things that they have historically loved for the people that they're with. Mm. So it is a bit of an inversion in that sense. That's fair. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't intentional. (laughs) Yeah. Branson asks if Matthew Good still loves cars, and Matthew Good says yes. He just doesn't want to race anymore. Branson's like, thank God. You have to love cars. It's important. So yeah, Branson says- Again, not a racing car that killed Matthew. (laughs) Just regular ass car. Yeah. Branson says he'll have to find another way to express his love of cars. Uh, maybe the two of them can express their love together. Like, no, I don't know. It's it's creepy. Matthew Good says mainly he has to find a job. Carson is pouring wine for Branson when his hands start shaking. Thomas asks if he's all right. and Mosley steps in to help. Mary says that Carson must rest and asks if he would like to sit there or go downstairs. And Carson says he'll go down. Mary says not to worry. Mosley will take care of them and asks Andy to help Carson and find Hughes. So they head out, and Mary says that she will check on Carson later. In the Carson cave, Mrs. Hughes pours Carson some tea and says it will calm him down. 
It has caffeine in it. <laughs> the, yeah, but the English have this weird belief about tea. Carson says he supposes she thinks he's a drunk or trembling with fear at the onset of old age. Carson, you're weird. Yeah, you are weird. I don't know weird. if we've said it enough, but, but you're is, a weird dude. Yeah, but this is where Jim Carter... Elevates everything yeah. about this character. Yeah, which is in in certain ways... Like, Thomas's character is misused... Carson's character is kind of awful. Yeah. And so, like, in that sense, Jim Carter kind of has a harder job. Well, we can discuss all this at length yeah. at a time that we are not planning ahead for. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't think that, but she would like to know what it is, and uh, she'll make an appointment with the doctor. And Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't believe that ignorance is bliss, at least it isn't to her, which is a very sensible view. Mm -hmm. Carson says there's no need because he knows what it is. His father had it and his grandfather, and it finished their careers. He says it's not really a proper condition. It doesn't have a name. He says his granddad called it the palsy, which is what most people still call this. Right. I think they're called essential tremors now. I think you're right. Um, But these days, he just has shaky hands. He says that he's done for. Mary knocks and enters and said she came to see how he was. Mrs. Hughes leaves and Carson says he's not ill. Mary says she's sure he's not, but he may be tired and there's no shame in that. Carson says that she has more important things to worry about. And Mary says, no, really? I don't. (laughs) Mary says that Carson must help her by like admitting he has a problem and he knows how dear he is to her. She says if there are changes that need to be made, they mustn't be afraid to face them. Yeah. So she's like saying, Hey dude, I don't know what's going on, but like, I like you. Yeah. No. And she actually is the one person that, that she will like have emotions towards yeah, that's like true. it's which is kind of weird. Matthew Good sits in the library. God, this scene. Branson asks to join them. Uh join him and Matthew Good says of course. Branson asks if Mary's okay about everything and Matthew Good says she's a bit concerned about what comes next, but that's allowed. We haven't seen any evidence that that's true, but okay. Branson says it can be hard for a woman to understand that a man is what he does. Oh, you mean like how you were an Irish revolutionary and then a journalist and now you're a fucking prat? Yeah. Fucking, this is just... This scene is everything that's been wrong with the last three series. Yeah. It's like two characters I don't give a shit about. Yeah. Behaving in ways that are counterindicated by everything else going on around them. Yeah. Anyway, it's the same old shit. Matthew Good just wants to be worthy of Mary, and, like, Branson, like, was like, maybe I'll help, and that's fine. I don't even care. No, and it's like, what? She has married you, therefore, already you are worthy. Yeah. Like, if you're going to sit here and have fucking YM Magazine over here tell you what to do... The only thing I'll note then is that in this short scene, I'm pretty sure Matthew Good gets through like three glasses of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Bulldog Drummond? He was a character. Uh, I looked him up. He was a like kind of pulp novel type character, but he was this very like English. I think he started in the English army and then wound up in various things, but he was sort of played the role of sort of a bulldog bulldog and like sort of typified a certain type of English manliness. Okay. Yeah. Oh, like a Teddy Roosevelt type. Kind of like okay. that, I believe. Or a Lord Baden-Powell. Yeah. Okay. I looked it up like a week ago, and that's my vague memory. Ah, you drunkard. <laughs> At Brancaster, McGee asks if they inherited the household from Hexham, and Mrs. Pelham says yes, but she's afraid that the staff had run of the place while he was there, or rather, while he wasn't there. Um, and so this the is Lord where... Wasn't there. This is where... I'm trying to remember who was who. They were there last Christmas special. Right. And there was a guy and a butler who was a jerk. Yeah, but the butler I don't think was the castle's butler. The other people had brought the jerk butler. But who with were them. the other people? 
That's what I'm not remembering. Because it was that guy and he had like that illegitimate child or whatever and Rose was like helping. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That all that all. Was it Atticus's dad? I think maybe it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Atticus's dad. Okay. Because I wanted to see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think it was Lord Cinderby. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. (laughs) Gross. This has been fun. Lord Grantham says that Mrs. Pelham seems to be managing, and McGee asks if she lives there, and Mrs. Pelham asks if she's asking if she'll move out when Bertie marries. She says she has rooms that were made into a flat for an aunt, but she's very comfortable, so don't worry. She'll be well out of the way. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be plenty of room. Yeah, I mean, they would never have to see each other if they didn't want to. Yeah. Edith says she's not at all worried, and Bertie agrees and says that he's told her it's less trouble having her in the house than out of it. What? Yeah. <laughs> she says that this must be an interesting time at the start of a new reign. And I kind of appreciate this scene because they're actually comfortable with this. This is the most normal thing that's happened to any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Since the series began. No, that's a good point. So if the hero's journey is returning to stasis, this is it. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is the life that McGee and Lord Grantham were a, well, McGee wasn't born into it exactly, but you know. Right. But Enough. Yeah. This is the life they were meant to build for their children. Yeah, yeah. And one of them is finally actually doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Without a dirty, dirty middle class person. <laughs> Although actually Bertie was middle class. Yeah, but now he isn't. And that's fine. They don't care about whether you were. She asks Bertie what they want to concentrate on. And Mrs. Pelham interrupts to say they want to rebuild Brancaster as a moral center for the area. And only Bertie can do that. Not just as a good landlord or farmer, but a moral man leading by example. Lord Crantham says he's sure that Brancaster already enjoys that reputation. It's so big. <laughs> but Mrs. Pelham is sorry to say that cousin Peter led a life that was not entirely Bertie interrupts to say that surely they don't need to hear about this or those Tangiers fishermen one more time. <laughs> Mrs. Pelham disagrees. If Edith is to take Bertie on, she should know what she's facing. Cousin Peter may have had his merits, but his morality was not what she would call reassuring. She tries to talk about Tangiers, <laughs> but Bertie says he really must insist. There's an awkward pause. Yeah. Whereas I would think LG and McG are like, you know, Tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> Diddy fist very far. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's an awkward pause. Yeah. Mrs. Pelham says very well and stands up to leave. to leave and says that if Bertie is to make a success there, he can't afford to put a foot wrong. She heads out and Lord Grantham says, golly. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know how true this is. It's like, who it's the fucking 20s, man. Right. People are still, you know, drinking bathtub gin, even though it's legal. Right. But Mrs. Pelham, like, clearly has this idea in her head. Yeah. Because they were first cousins once removed, right? I believe so, yeah. I would be curious what her relationship to Cousin Peter's relations are. Yeah. Obviously, his father, at least, is dead. Right. Well, and I think that she clearly had a... Uh, you know, period appropriate disgust at homosexuality and was very frustrated at her inability to ever make that feeling known, you know? Yeah, which I, you know, yeah, I wish there was more of that, honestly. Right, exactly. You know, if we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it, Baron Fellows. Yeah. At the Her Downton- attitude is that it does not get better. <laughs> not even in 10 years. <laughs> at the Downton Cottage Hospital, Isabel and Murdy walk out with Clarkson. Hey, Clarkson. Hey, that guy. Yeah. 
Murdy says they've been wasting his time, and Clarkson says not as all, not at all, but he's afraid his symptoms do confirm the diagnosis. Murdy says he knew they shouldn't have bothered him, but Isabel insisted, and Isabel says she wanted to be sure, and now they can dis- and now and now we can decide how to deal with it. Murdy says we. Isabel says she's not going to let him go through this alone. Aww. Yeah. Isabel thanks Clarkson and walks off with Murdy. Murdy asks why she wants to get caught up in this, and Isabel says that she knows very well, but then Crookshank walks up and says that she's been waiting. Murdy asks how she knew he was there, and she says that her sh- uh, that his chauffeur told him that his chauffeur told her that he went to Isabel's, and the maid there said that he was at the hospital. Isabel says, quite a paper chase. You'd make a good detective. I like it when Isabel sasses Crookshank. <laughs> That's right. Crickshank says there's no need to fuss with medical advice. They know the worst, and please allow them to deal with it in their own way. Murdy says that Isabel wants to be involved, but Crookshank says surely he doesn't want to burden her. And dumb old Murdy is like, oh, oh, well, not burden, exactly. Uh, and then Crookshank tells the chauffeur to help Murdy into the car, so he gets let off. And Crookshank tells Isabel to leave them alone. That's all she asks. Isabel says it's a great deal to ask. And when she thought she'd be saddled with Murdy for years, Isabel was necessary evil. But now, and Crookshank, looking directly at her face, says, Heavens, is that the time? Good day, Mrs. Crawley. <sighs> Amelia Crookshank is the villain we need right now. Yeah, she's, she's fucking great. Yeah, she oh, is. She's so evil. Yeah. Just Evil and, and satisfying. And, and an upper class evil person. Yeah. We haven't had an evil upper class person. Cause like, even like the point of Lord Cinderby was like, well, I guess Susan. Yeah. But that feel, that felt more complicated because Rose's attitude toward her mm-hmm. was complicated as yeah. it would be. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. But no, Crookshank just straight up. She's billion. just a fresh breath of evil air. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. In Mary's room, Mary comes in and tells Matthew Good that she's been looking for him and wondered if he like, might like a walk. Something pointed out to me in a telegram, which I can't remember the center of, uh-huh. is that, uh, so are Mary and Matthew Good shacking up in the same room that she was in with Matthew? Uh, it's her room. <laughs> I take all my lovers here. <laughs> I kill them here, too. Uh, Matthew Good says he'd love one, and he's been thinking about what he could do to be a worthy husband. He says when he was driving, he wasn't her equal, but he was an eccentric, even exciting choice. Now he's just a poor man being supported by a rich wife, and he doesn't want her having to explain him. Was he not poor when he was racing? Uh, And when I say poor, I mean quote unquote in the way that, you know, Spidey is now poor. (laughs) Spidey being Spencer and Heidi of the Hills. (laughs) Yes. Um, Because they're like, oh, we're broke. And yet, like, they're like, they're living. To be fair, also true of Peter Parker. Oh, yeah. No, he was poorer. He had to work. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Heidi and Spencer are just crashing in his dad's beach house (laughs) and eating like truffle fries. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, Matthew Good doesn't want Mary having to explain him. Mary says she doesn't mind explaining him, but he says the worst of it is he's done it to himself, which is why he has to get moving. Also, you don't have to, I don't explain things frequently. (laughs) I live my life and I'm like, I don't care to tell you why I'm doing this. Well, and again, this is all perfectly reasonable for him to say just for himself, this was the thing I was passionate about and I need something else to focus on like that's a perfectly reasonable attitude but instead of making it all about oh this is for mary i need Mm -hmm. to do it for her which again would be fine if it were through the lens where like anybody knows that Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it it, 
Because that's totally a narrative that would happen. Yeah. Because at the time, he would still be viewed as the, you know, the head of the household who Mm -hmm. knows what's best, whether that was what was actually happening. Right, right. He says it isn't self-pity. He just knows that he's right. Case in point. Yeah. Mary says she's in love with him, and he says it motivates everything he does. And Mary says, how very cheering, and kisses him. Anytime Mary smiles, (laughs) it's like that scene in Adam's Family Values where Christine Baranski and that other guy make Christina Ricci smile, and it is unsettling. Yeah. Like, Mary being actually happy, like, when Mary's happy, she doesn't smile. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, there's there's times when she seems happy. There probably were times with Matthew that didn't feel forced. Yeah. But, because she says... Do you know how in love with you I am? And I'm like, oh, no one believes this. <laughs> yeah. It's like the uncanny valley of happiness. <laughs> yeah. Up at the top of some wall at Brancaster, Lord Grantham tells Edith that they're being taken on a tour of the grounds. Edith says that Bertie says that this is the best view, and of course he's right. Lord Grantham asks if he told her that there's a dinner on Monday for the announcement, and Edith says that she just wishes she was sure she was doing the right thing for Bertie. Lord Grantham points out that he had the chance to get away, and he came back. Edith says she's not convinced that he's faced up to what could happen if it gets out. Lord Grantham asks why it should get out, and Edith points out that at the beginning, nobody was supposed to know except Rosamond, but now everybody knows in the family, and probably Anna, which means Hughes and Carson will know. Lord Grantham doubts that she's told Carson because he would faint, and Edith laughs and says, well, Pat more then, and so it goes on, and how could it not get out? Lord Grantham says, well, then she's taking a chance, but he hopes that she will take it and live a good life with a nice man. He also asks if this is just loyalty to Michael Gregson. And Edith says no. She loved him, but he is gone, and now she is in love with Bertie. Lord Grantham says that's what matters. And he says not to make her life more difficult than it needs to be. And they head to the tour. That's a good scene. Yeah, perfectly good scene. I have nothing to say about it. Yeah. (laughs) In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore tells Thomas she wishes him well. Thomas expects they'll all be glad to see the back of him. Mrs. Hughes says she won't. And to give her a kiss. God damn it, I love her. Yeah. Anna says to look after himself and get the people he'll be working with on his side. He can do it. Thomas says, be nicer, you mean. Carson says it wouldn't hurt. He's quick and efficient, and no one's ever called him stupid. There's no reason why he shouldn't get on. Boy, this all might have been helpful and useful when you were berating him to his death. Right. Thomas seems moved by it, actually, in this moment. He thanks him and says he's learned a great deal from Carson, and he's grateful. Mosley and Andy shake his hand. Andy tries to apologize, but Thomas says he's a hard worker and a good fellow, and he wishes him well. We hear, Mr. Bellow! <laughs> oh my god, y'all. Yeah. Mary comes in with all the children and says that they wanted to say goodbye. Thomas says they've just caught him and picks up George and says he hopes they'll be good when he's gone. Sibby says, no, he won't! <laughs> These children are terrible actors. Yeah, they it are. It's worth commenting. <laughs> also, Marigold doesn't run toward him because possibly she has no bones in her legs. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with this kid. Yeah. But she isn't, like, doing anything. Yeah. George George says, please don't go, Mr. Bowow. And it is so cute. Thomas yeah. says he must go, and he will always be George's friend wherever he is, which is a good seed to sow when Carson dies. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, everybody's acting like Carson's going to live forever. Right. Even in the face of the plot that is currently happening. I know. It's like, you know, yeah. what are you like, going to do when he's gone? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the whole point of having a vice butler. Anyway, he sets George down and hugs Sibby, says, right, that's it. Mary says, goodbye and good luck. And Thomas heads out. In another of the most stupid lines of this episode, (laughs) Daisy says, it's strange to think I was soft on you once. Which she was, very briefly. Which was back when this show made sense. That's right. (laughs) 
Yeah, those were the days. Mrs. Patmore says Daisy was never much of a judge in that department. And again, it's like, okay, everyone else on the show has had more agency in Daisy's romantic life than Daisy. Yeah. Which is not how life works. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but I liked that scene, apart from that bit at the end, I yeah. like that scene, uh, again, because of... Mr. Bellow! <laughs> yeah. At Brancaster, Edith walks into Mrs. Pelham's office or whatever. I think it's the library, actually. Okay. Yeah. And says that she's sorry to disturb her. She says she's come because there's something Mrs. Pelham ought to be aware of before the announcement. Mrs. Pelham asks if Bertie knows she's there, and Edith says no. Mrs. Pelham says, but he knows what you're about to tell me, and Edith says yes, he knows everything. Uh, they sit, and Mrs. Pelham says, well, she'd better begin. I like this scene a lot also. Yeah. Because there's no histrionics about this. Right. That's it's just, hey. Yeah. you know, And look, and I think, however this all shakes out, Edith knows what she wants. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want, because keeping Marigold a secret didn't work anyway. Right. And right. these things do tend to get out. It just resulted in a lot of, like, craziness and pigs. And-, and it's like, I think in a sense, if you're a dude and you take on a ward, it is very acceptable. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you're a guy and you're like, oh, I'm taking on this ward who's obviously my illegitimate bastard child with right. some woman that is unacceptable to society, and right. that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're a woman, it tarnishes you in a way, well, you know, he didn't have to carry the filthy thing mm. in his uterus for nine months, <laughs> did right. he? Yeah. And... You know, Mrs. Pelham's obviously got quite an overbite going here, mm-hmm. but she has no reason to think ill of Edith and is like, well, let's just yeah. hash this out. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. So Thomas walks up to the new house he's working in and in the dining room, an old guy walks in and asks if he knows where everything is. Thomas says, I think so, Sir Mark. And he says he can always ask Mrs. Jenkins. Mark says the maid Elsie will be in soon. And Thomas asks if that's it, him, Jenkins and Elsie. And Mark says, yes, this is an 1850, you know, like in a tone that is a lot more about Sir Mark. Yeah. Than it is about Thomas. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, and Thomas looks at the clock and seems a little bit bummed. Yeah. Because, you know, he was going to make all these new friends. Right. And, you know, they're both girls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm also surprised that he didn't know that going in, but... I am as well, but, you know... Relatively minor, as this show goes. (laughs) On Pig Farm, Daisy walks up and sees Andy working on the roof. Mason says he's lending a hand with the slides, which I guess is like shingles or tiles or whatever. He says the pigs will be arriving soon and he needs to separate the mothers. Daisy asks who else he has to help him, and Mason says only old Joe, same as always, and gestures at old Joe in the background. Old Joe's always been there, Mr. <laughs> Torrance. I, I also like to imagine, well, I'm only 40, damn it! <laughs> A peasant's life is on! <laughs> Mason says that he takes on two men for the harvest and the piglets, but it's helpful to have the use of a young man's muscles. And Daisy seems to be realizing that she might enjoy a young man's muscles herself as she watches Andy in his short sleeve shirt. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like Daisy's not a sexual person. Right. Like I'm not casting aspersions on what she is or is not, but mm-hmm. she does not seem to have had any kind of sexual awakening in any of her crushes. Right. All of her crushes have had a very distinctly schoolgirl quality about them. Right. And again, living a life in service, that's not out of the question. Right. She may or may not even know what sex is. Right. Because obviously it wasn't going to happen with William. Yeah. And I doubt Mrs. Patmore has told her. Yeah. She's suffered enough. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I, I give this a little bit of credit because I do feel like that's what happens is Daisy's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I feel things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Baxter pops in. I might come with you. <laughs> I ruin everything. Just like Baxter. Come on. I'm at least a little more exciting and judgmental. <laughs> that's, that's true. Anyway, Daisy says that Andy should have told her he was coming and she'd have walked down with him. And Andy says he didn't want to bother she her She would have again. said, I might come with you. <laughs> she would have. Mason says that Andy's a cracking lad. He's getting older and was hoping that Daisy might move in, but at least he's got Andy to count on. Uh, so that's a nice little passive-aggressive move there, Mason. Daisy says that she's still thinking about it, but it's a big step to be cut off from the house. Mason says she wouldn't be cut off if she didn't want to be. Andy asks if Mason has any more nails. He says yes, and then asks if they want tea. Andy says no, Daisy's come to talk to Mason, not him. So he heads back up the ladder, and Mason asks if they've fallen out. Daisy says not exactly. They just didn't quite fall in the way Andy wanted. Mason says she could do worse, and Daisy says, so everyone keeps saying, and stands and watches Andy hammering. You know, you've got to consider Mr. Mason, pretty passive-aggressive dude. Yeah. Successfully so. Yeah. Like... He seems so kindly, but he works that in. He really does. In some room in Brancaster, we haven't figured it out. And it's a weird-looking room. It is. Bertie walks in and his mom asks where they are. He says they've gone for a walk. He says that he knows that she knows because Edith told him and she asks why he didn't tell her. Bertie says he wanted to spare her and she scoffs. Bertie says he'd have kept her in the dark, but it was Edith's decision. Uh, Mrs. Pelham asks if that's supposed to make these sordid revelations fragrant. Bertie says to him, Edith's story shows only courage, decency, loyalty, and a high regard for truth. Mrs. Pelham says that she can reach her own conclusions. I know. Like, yeah. she stole that baby twice. Yeah. A lot of lying involved. But anyway. Bertie says he's not a child and he won't be dictated to. She says that he has a tough task ahead of him, a task few would envy if they knew much about it. Like, no, I think... My real question is, the previous Earl of Hexham took his buggery to Tangiers. Right. So what do these people even know about anything? I don't know, but he this was whole gonna come back and sprog up a lady. Uh, yeah, by I, all accounts, supposedly. Yeah, but the, this whole Mrs. Pelham, you know, fantasy that oh, it's, it's this lonely burden of being, you know, the Marquess of Hexham. It's like no, I I think the people in the coal mines would still envy you even if they actually knew the whole story. Yeah, I think they'd still be a mite jealous. <laughs> Anyway, Mrs. Pelham says that Bertie needs a wife with strength of character and the highest moral probity. Bertie agrees with her and says that he has chosen accordingly. Mrs. Pelham says that Edith is damaged goods. She doesn't dislike Edith, but she has ruled herself out of the running. And what's more, Edith knows that. Bertie's glad that she doesn't dislike Edith. And he thinks now they should bring this conversation to an end and heads out. Yeah. And, you know, it's the situation where it's like, how much power does this lady actually have? Yeah, because it's pretty clear that Birdie is not going to be overruled by her when it, if it comes down to it. Like, it seems... And so in that case, she's the only one with any power in terms of bringing the story to light. Right. Whereas in all likelihood, it's not... They could make up a whole lie. Yeah, yeah. They could totally make up some lies here that would totally legitimize... Like, oh, who's to say Edith didn't elope with that guy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, granted, there is still the problem of Mrs. Gregson. Yeah. But yeah. whatever. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> At Murdy House, Crookshank opens the door to Isabel and says, they said you were here. Isabel says she asked them to tell Murdy, but Crookshank says that he is resting. Isabel says she's beginning to understand why she was asked to wait outside. Crookshank says that Murdy is dying, he has a short time left, and he wants to spend it with his family. Isabel says she's like to hear it from his lips, and Crookshank says that won't be possible and closes the door. 
At the estate office, Sibby is helping Branson with some kind of printing machine while George helps Matthew Good at the desk. So see, he's already being a better parent than Mary has ever been. <laughs> You're right. And Mary is- only engages with George to parade him in front of servants who are dying or leaving. <laughs> yeah. And this is very cute and adorable. And it's like when I was a baby and would go to see my dad at his office mm-hmm. and he would let me play on the oh, keyboard yeah. of his computer. It's very nice. Uh, Matthew Good says they ought to be getting back, and Sibby says, no, I'm working. <laughs> Matthew Good says, oh, I'm sorry, they say that in a minute, because Matthew Good says, mummy will be wondering where they are, and Sibby says, I have no mummy. <laughs> Branson says, Matthew Good, that he'll start looking tomorrow. Will he- Matthew Good tell Mary? Matthew Good says, not yet. She'd find it too odd. Branson says that Mary has more imagination than he gives her credit for. You should see the things she writes about dead Turkish diplomats. (laughs) Matthew Good says that they're outsiders there, and he wants to set it up without their help if Branson doesn't mind. Branson doesn't. He says he's ready for this chance just like Matthew Good is. So again, more scenes of people we don't care about being unnecessarily mysterious about something that is surely going to be revealed in due course. Here, here. At the Dower House, the Dowager tells Denker to tell Potter that Isabel will stay for supper and they won't change. Isabel says, oh, she doesn't mind what she eats, but the Dowager says, nonsense, the cook always cooks for ten anyway, and tells Denker to tell Spratt. Denker says she will tell him if she can find him. He's so busy these days, so preoccupied. Denker heads out, and Isabel asks what that was about, and Dowager says that in Denker's mind, she is Salome, dancing rings around Spratt's Herod. Which I love the fact that Denker, like, the Dowager has no respect for Denker at all. Oh, no. Or and her she plots. knows what's going on. Yeah. And, and she's doesn't just care. like, you know what? I'm going to die, and then there's somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah. She asks Isabel if Crookshank actually threw her out, and Isabel says, well, she never let me in, but yes. The Dowager says that Murdy is their captive. Isabel says maybe he really does only want to see his family. And the Dowager says, no, they have got him under lock and key. Now that he's on the way out, there must be no claims on the estate. And that's what this is about. Isabel says she can hardly push past the servants and run upstairs to his bedroom. And the Dowager doesn't see why not. As her late father used to say, if reason fails, try force. We've never heard anything about your father before. Yeah. No, but this, I mean, this whole plot line, like, this is really, like, this is serious. And this is, you know, as old people, this is something that could happen to them if things go the wrong way in it their lives. It can still happen today. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, again, the I mean, one, it's elder abuse. It is elder abuse. And this is, the respect for the lives of the elderly is the one thing about Downton that has really been, like. Consistent and handled with dignity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it helps that Baron Julian Fellows is actually elderly. Yeah, that may be true. In Mrs. Hughes's parlor, Carson is looking at his shaking hand. He says he'd always hoped it would pass him by, but no such luck. Mosley comes in and says, oh, they're busy, but Mrs. Hughes says to go ahead. Mosley says he's going to take the teaching job. Carson says they're down to one footman in him. Mosley says he thought maybe for a house party or special occasions he could come back. He's got his livery and he could just walk up from the village. Carson says his livery will stay there for who to use. (laughs) Right. Mrs. Hughes says that's kind and Mr. Carson will be grateful when he's in his right mind. And Carson is shocked. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes asks if Mosley knows when he's going and Mosley says it depends if he needs to work out his notice. Carson says there's no need for that. He might as well get used to it and nobody's there anyway. Right. Mosley says then he'll move out in a week or so. He asks Carson if that's all right. Carson says never better. Mosley heads out and Mrs. Hughes asks why Carson said never better. 
uh, Carson asks if he's supposed to tell his private business to the whole world now. And when was he ever not in his right mind? And Mrs. Hughes says, really? Your livery remains here, I ask you. <laughs> Carson says, the fact remains that they're down to Andy and him, and he is worse than useless. He gets up and walks out. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll credit you that. That he's, I yeah. don't say he's worse than useless, but I mean, he doesn't seem to be able to have any warning of when these attacks yeah. are coming on, yeah. which isn't great for doing stuff. Yeah, and that's, his ridiculousness, at least in this special, is at least motivated by his, you know, fear yeah. in this in this case. At Brancaster, Edith tells Bertie that she couldn't live there and see his mother every day and watch her play with Marigold and leave her in the dark. I think it's optimistic to think that this lady's going to play with anyone. Well, right, because as Bertie points out, she never particularly played with him. <laughs> but never mind, they've made their positions clear and must play it out. Lord Grantham and McGee walk up. Lord Grantham asks if it was really necessary, and Edith says it was to her. McGee says that she's proud of Edith and sees Mrs. Pelham approaching and tells them all to smile. Thomas stands as Sir Mark and his wife finish dinner. They don't want cheese, so they'll go through. Bad news for the cheese that was prepared. Uh, Thomas snuffs out the candles. Yeah. So, And this is all... Thomas gets a a fair amount of wordless acting in this episode. Yes. Fancy dinner at Brancaster. It's pretty fancy. Once again, suck it, High Clerk Castle. (laughs) Yeah. It's real fancy. Lord Grantham asks Mrs. Pelham if this is the moment. Is this the moment? (laughs) Is this the time? <laughs> she says, what moment? He's like, oh. Bertie taps Edith and stands up, but then Mrs. Pelham stands up and asks if she can say a few words. She wants to thank them all for their kindness to her son in coming here to support him. She says this change in his life is a great responsibility, but it's reassuring for them to know that they're surrounded by friends. She drinks to them all. They're like, we really don't know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> like, you just moved in. You were the agent, right? <laughs> Bertie reluctantly drinks and then says it is his turn to make an announcement of his own. Lord Grantham whispers to Mrs. Pelham that she should speak now or she'll have lost Bertie forever. So Mrs. Pelham stands up and asks to make the very happy announcement that Bertie is engaged to marry Edith. And they all rise and drink to Edith and Bertie. And they're all like, yeah, we know. Right. She's the only person we don't know here. And you <laughs> threw this fancy dinner. We assumed something was coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the resolution of that. Which it's, is weird. It is a and little weird. And it's like, weird. how did Lord Grantham even know anything <laughs> right. was going on? But <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's fine. I don't really understand what she was going to do right. or what the breach of etiquette it was, was here. It but. was all a very, like, half-baked crisis. But, you know, eh. <laughs> what would you rate the final season of Downton Abbey? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which brings us... To the end of part one right. of our two-part episode. We felt that was a good stopping point, and we clearly made the right choice in breaking this into two parts, or it would have been, like, well over four hours. Yeah. And we're... we know you're all dedicated listeners, but come on. Yeah. Well, you know, they can listen to it in as many chunks <laughs> well, as they like. We sure. can't power through four hours of talking. <laughs> we, we actually can't. Yeah. I have to pee right now. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, until next time. Up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out.